listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Welcome to the biggest political show on the planet. More details later. What more could go wrong for Donald Trump as the coronavirus cuts a swathe through the southern red states that went for Trump last time? If Florida was a country, it would be the third most coronavirus-stricken land on the earth. And Texas and Arizona are not all that far behind them. Donald Trump, of course, at least is still putting himself out there. Joe Biden is still missing in action. What's going on in the Democratic Party? And now that Ghislaine Maxwell is safely ensconced in the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York City. She what? What? I'm sure she'll be safe. I'm sure she's going to pull through coronavirus isolated. What could go wrong isolated in a cell in New York City? But where are the Epstein Maxwell tapes? That's what we'll be probing tonight with the one and only Whitney Webb. They used to say, follow the money. Surely the story now is follow the tapes and who's on them? According to the newspapers this morning, Ghislaine Maxwell has video of two prominent US politicians having sex with minors. Well, we can guess who one of them is, I think, but who might the other one be? Intriguing. And much more than this, all coming up in the next three hours on the biggest political show on the planet. It's a radio show with pictures, so strap in. Buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're on FM in crystal clarity in the Washington, D.C. area. Many, many listeners there now. I get mail all the time, including from inside the Congress itself. Yes, the people who I gave a whopping to back in 2005 are watching, or at least listening, to this show. We're on AM right across the United States, uh, from Burning City to Burning City, and of course, broadcasting online all over the world on sputniknews.com. But uniquely, more people, vastly more people, are watching this show as well as merely listening to it. Last week, after seven straight plus 600,000 viewers, this week, Last week, last Sunday's show obtained the staggering figure of 750,000 views. That's the second highest ever. 
episode 41. You may recall when the world looked as if it was about to go to war over Iran, 1.1 million people watched, 750,000 watched last Sunday. And if you add in the listenership on all those platforms that I mentioned, it's safe to say that the audience for the mother of all talk shows, a global university of the airwaves, was last week 1 million people plus. So if you're watching on Facebook, as most of you are, uh, then please share now with all of your friends and contacts. You can watch on my Facebook page, which most people do, or you can watch on RT's multiple Facebook platforms. You can also watch on Twitter, you can watch on YouTube, on my own YouTube channel, or RT's multiple YouTube channels. You can watch on Instagram, and what was that other fancy new one that we were on last week? Twitch! I have no idea what Twitch is, but you can definitely watch us there also. And there will be more platforms being added over the next few weeks. We are determined to turn in one million audience every single week because the show deserves it and you deserve it. You deserve an open university of the airwaves where there are no tuition fees, there are no advertisements, there's no license fee, and you are positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher, as Paul did famously last week, the wee Scottish nationalist from uh, Glasgow, I think, judging by his accent, Glasgow or environs. Uh, he's now been viewed, thanks to the Daily Express and multiple others that picked it up, by literally millions of people, demonstrating the absolute economic illiteracy of Scottish nationalism. Maybe he'll come back for more punishment this week. Please God, I hope he does. But over to the United States first. If Florida was a country, it would be behind only three other countries in the shocking swathe of people being cut down by the coronavirus. In fact, uh, the epidemic is now cutting a swathe through Trump territory. And it's very likely that this is going to depress support for the president when the election comes, always assuming that he doesn't, as I predicted last week, he might cut and run before November, get himself a pardon from the new president, Mike Pence, and thus be safe from the vengeance of the Pussy Hat Brigade and the Democratic Party that will never forgive him for showing America's ugly face to the world quite as lewdly as he has. Uh, the Democratic contender has done nothing in the last week, but then he doesn't have to. He's ahead in all of the swing states that gave Trump the presidency last time, and he's fully 10 points ahead of President Trump in the general populace. If that holds up, and it's a big if, because of course Hillary Clinton was also ahead, uh, though not quite as much as that, uh, then it will be a landslide defeat for President Trump without Joe Biden even having to get out of bed. Not that you would know whether he was asleep or awake. Uh, he sounds just as cogent in both uh, conditions. Uh, but it's the Ghislaine Maxwell arrest uh, that will be the main burden of my remarks 
in the beginning of this show. As uh, many of you know, I'm uh, well familiar with the Maxwell family, including her, but especially her criminal father, Robert Maxwell, who either fell off the back of his boat, the Lady Ghislaine, clue was in the name, or was pushed off the back of his boat. My money is on the latter. And he was pushed off the back of the boat, if that's what happened, precisely because of the information which he had and which might come out wittingly or unwittingly, willingly or unwillingly in the forthcoming trials, which were inevitable once Robert Maxwell was unmasked as the criminal that he was, stealing hundreds of millions of pounds from the pension funds of his own employees. And so if I'm right about that, you can imagine my consternation uh, when I learned that Ghislaine Maxwell is now in the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York City, as safe as the Bank of England used to be. Except she's already in isolation because uh, she may have uh, coronavirus 19 and therefore no one can go near her. No one can interrupt her in the middle of her suicide, which probably would come as quite a big shock to her too. Because if Ghislaine Maxwell does survive to stand trial on the very serious charges warranting 30 to 40 years of imprisonment, in other words, imprisoned for the rest of her life, uh, then the only way out of that kind of prison sentence for Ghislaine Maxwell is to <coughs> cough. And cough she might. It's already being uh, allowed to be known, let's put it that way, that she has tapes. She has tapes, she claims, of two prominent American politicians having sex with minors. Now, I could make a pretty good guess as to who one of those might be. But the identity of the second uh, has got me stumped up till now. Uh, and I would very much like for her uh, to reveal these tapes and the thousands of other tapes that we know exist because we have eyewitness accounts that every single room in the Manhattan townhouse sold to Epstein by Mr. Wexner of Victoria's Secrets for one dollar, every room in that mansion uh, was bugged. There were cameras in every room, including the bathrooms. So every act which went on in that sordid mansion is on tape. Given that, it's exceedingly unlikely uh, that the rooms and chalets in Pedophile Island were not similarly bugged, that there were not cameras catching the guests, cavorting with whom we do not yet entirely and completely know in the inflagrante uh, of the uh, allegations. Now, uh, if those tapes exist, therefore, I want you to answer my first poll. Where are the incriminating Epstein tapes? A, Langley, Virginia, that's the uh, headquarters of the CIA, B, Tel Aviv, and C, sleeping with the fishes, sleeping with the fishes, 
I see, is ahead for the moment. So you can vote now on my Twitter feed. Now, we normally follow the money in these scandals, but I think in this case, we need to follow the tapes because this entire Epstein episode is only explicable to me as an intelligence operation, as a means of gathering compromat, the uh, old Russian word for compromising material on prominent politicians, royals, British politicians and their sidekicks, American politicians, former Israeli Premier Ehud Barak, uh, would-be politicians, would-be presidential candidates, and gathering that compromise on them so as to uh, be able to bend them uh, to the will of whoever is the copyright holder of that compromise in their political futures thereafter. We'll be talking to Whitney Webb, who knows more about Epstein than anyone else on the planet, perhaps as much as the woman in the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York City. And uh, when we come to interview Whitney, do bear in mind that she was ahead of this story by many, many months, perhaps a whole year. Now everyone's talking about it, but she was brave enough, smart enough to smell this story for what it was right at the very beginning. Now, we're not just talking coronavirus, we're not just talking Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, we are talking Nicaragua, we'll be talking to a minister, no less, from Nicaragua about what's happening to his country in the 1980s. I was a frequent visitor there. All roads led to Nicaragua in the 1980s. Oxfam called it the threat of a good example, following development uh, uh, pathways and pathways to literacy and public health that were an absolute jewel and were a glittering attraction for other global south countries that wanted to forge their own way forward in the world. That's why they were destroyed uh, by the United States of America at the time. That's why the Iran-Contra affair occurred. That's why these Contras paid for by the United States to interfere in the democratically elected government of Nicaragua's public health, education, environmental, women's rights and other uh, projects. And they literally cut the throats of the people who were teaching uh, the poor peasantry uh, how to stay healthy, how to read and write, and how to plant their crops and harvest them in the most efficacious way. And the Sandinista revolution was destroyed. Uh, but it's back. It's been re-elected to power. And guess what? Right on cue, they too have been designated as public enemies, at least number two after Venezuela. And a full-scale regime change operation is underway against them. We'll be talking to His Excellency, the Minister uh, for uh, Global Affairs in the Nicaraguan government in the course of this show. But first up is my good friend, uh, Manila Chan. She is my uh, host, my uh, interlocutor every night of the week on RT America at uh, 5 p.m., uh, sorry, 7 p.m. London time. Uh, and uh, I'm very glad to say that she joins us 
right after the break. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for the regular segment called Veterans for Peace, where we focus on the contemporary issues of war and peace that affect veterans, their families, the country, and the world as a whole. Veterans for Peace President Jerry Condon joins the show every Thursday. Hear about this and more every Thursday right here on Radio Sputnik. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway, the world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. So where are the incriminating Epstein-Maxwell tapes? A. Langley, Virginia, with the CIA, 22%. B. Tel Aviv with the government of Israel and its intelligence agency, 38%, or C, sleeping with the fishes. That's ahead at 40%, 290 votes in so far. You can vote on my Twitter feed. As I say, the great Whitney Webb uh, is up in the uh, course of the show talking about the Epstein affair. Um, we'll also be talking uh, towards the final hour uh, to the one and only Dr. Ranjit Bra, as the coronavirus pandemic shows signs of re-rising in Britain. We'll be examining the issues of masks, the possibility of having uh, a vaccine in place later this year. We'll be talking about the impact of this on the British economy, which has been, I think we can fairly say, catastrophic. And if not for the follow scheme uh, paid for by the UK taxpayer as a whole in due course, no doubt, uh, then millions of people, many, many millions of people would be unemployed and hungry in Britain today. And indeed, uh, they are in many other parts of the world. Manila Chan is the host of In Question every night on RT America, where I am honored to join her most nights. And I'm glad to say she joins me now. Manila, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Wonderful uh, to see you again. Let's talk first about the, uh, the coronavirus, can we? Um, President sure. Trump said that uh, you had 15 cases and you would be quite, you'd quite soon be close to zero. He said when the weather got warm, uh, it would uh, simply die uh, on its own. Uh, he said that uh, your country was in control of it when in fact it's plain for anyone to see it is completely out of control. And now uh, states like Florida, as I said earlier, if Florida was a country, it would be one of the most afflicted countries on the earth. How is this happening and how is it going to affect President Trump? Uh, well, George, first, good to see you. It's always a little strange to be on the other side of the yes. questions. Uh, but uh, as this would affect President Trump, I mean, first, we should address that President Trump yesterday appeared at Walter Reed uh, Veterans Hospital 
just outside of D.C., finally sporting a mask. That was the first time he's ever been seen publicly wearing a mask, although people have said behind closed doors that the president has worn uh, PPE before. But this is the first time that the press has ever captured images of that. So I think uh, that is a big move uh, in in signaling to people that he does sort of is beginning to take this seriously because that first wave that we saw, uh, we were expecting a plateau and that it would flatten the curve and we would be done by Easter. Now, George, he never said which Easter. So I think that's important to clear up. And secondly, again, you're right. Florida is seeing an incredible spike there. It's obviously a very hot, humid state. We expected, or at least at the time that, that medical professionals uh, thought that the as the weather warmed up, that coronavirus would dissipate with the heat. Uh, that's clearly proven not true. I think there's a lot of medical science that's that's uh, not clear yet on how to address this. So I don't think it's fully, you know, something you can pin on President Trump. And I'm not here to defend President Trump, uh, but I will say that the U.S. has been woefully ill-prepared to deal with this, whether it was in the way of a lockdown or any type of uh, medical procedures or processes of how to handle uh, sick people. Um, but the U.S. is seeing an incredible spike. We, we, we thought we plateaued, but we were wrong. Well, uh, you don't win the presidency if you don't win Florida. Uh, and uh, ditto Texas, Arizona. These are all red states that he won sure. uh, and that are now uh, really in the pits of this pandemic. It must be hurting him. You know, George, those are still red states. Um, as much as Florida might be hurting right now, it, it is an ardent red state. And I think a lot of people can point to New York, whose numbers still surpass Florida by hundreds of thousands, George. Uh, Florida has still not seen as many deaths as New York State has seen, which is a, a Democrat state. It votes Democrat. It's run by Democrats. Uh, Florida is an ardent red state. So is Texas. And Arizona could be a purple state this year. We will see. Uh, they traditionally vote Republican no matter what. Uh, it's one of the few you know, more Western states that do vote red. Um, but I, I believe they will still go to President Trump this election cycle. Now, uh, it never rains, but of course, uh, there he was, just surviving the Mueller inquiry, just surviving the Russiagate hysteria, and along came another Russiagate. Uh, the, it turns out to be absolutely baseless allegation uh, that Russia was paying a bounty uh, to the Taliban to get them to kill American soldiers, as if they needed a bounty from anyone. And as I pointed out last week, Manila, the only people who've ever paid the Taliban bounties for killing uh, occupiers is the United States, which paid That's them right. to kill Russians. Did this just die away like the coronavirus didn't die, or is it still uh, a thing? Uh, I think a lot of the left stream media is still attempting to give this thing legs, uh, but it's not catching on the way they had hoped the first Russiagate did. Um, people are still talking about it, but not to the extent that, that they, you know, it blew up when it first hit the scene a few weeks ago when you and I were talking about it 
on in question. Uh, it's kind of faded away, still no legs. I'm, I'm hoping it does go away because this is, this is bad for, for just global democracy. You're, you're making a mockery of diplomacy and, and, and the real war that they should be fighting because ISIS is still not gone. The Taliban is resurging, and I don't mean their diplomatic arm. The Taliban is resurging across Afghanistan. If the Taliban were to collect bounties for the heads of American soldiers, why then does the U.S. Congress continue to want to keep them there? Why does the DOD want to continue to keep them there? So I think a lot of the American public have learned lessons from Russiagate 1.0, where they've learned to kind of wait and listen for the facts. Uh, but meanwhile, you still have mainstream media pushing the narrative, but a lot of people aren't buying it this time. I don't know if you know, uh, because it's mainly a British story so far, but Christopher Steele, uh, the author of uh, the original dirty dossier, uh, which had these uh, poor girls wetting themselves in Moscow hotel rooms with excitement at being in the presence of uh, Donald Trump, he's back. <laughs> he's got a new dossier. Uh, this time, it alleges that uh, half of the British establishment are secretly in the pay of China. Uh, they are Chinese agents. That's the latest oh. of uh, Christopher Steele's uh, creative writing uh, career. Uh, but moving on to the Democrats, um, I said earlier, and it's true, isn't it, that literally Joe Biden cannot be let out yes. alone. Uh, we don't know uh, if he is asleep or awake, and it would appear it makes no difference which. Uh, and yet he is still uh, comfortably ahead in the yes. public uh, opinion polls. Except people say, well, wait till he has to debate with Donald Trump. And that's a fair point. But why would he have to debate with Donald Trump? Might he not just say, actually debates in the time of the coronavirus with a debating partner who simply makes things up. I'm not going to debate him. Perhaps he'll rob us of that, uh, that spectacle. I, I hope he, he doesn't, uh, because obviously I, I work in news, and like you said, it would be a spectacle. It would make my job very interesting to, to sit over and monitor uh, this this debate if it were to happen in in late september which is what it's scheduled for um and that's kind of unheard of in modern american uh presidential elections to not have a debate but then again we've never lived through a pandemic nobody alive today has ever lived through such a pandemic so this is just there's no frame of reference for it in modern history george and i know you've been in politics a long time uh what is an election without some sort of a debate? Uh, so I guess you kind of have to presume that people have made up their minds one way or the other, uh, whether they're voting for Joe Biden uh, because they support him, which a lot of people don't, I should say. Um, if he does receive the vote, a lot of it, at least from the young people, will be an anti-Trump vote, not because they truly support Joe Biden and his platforms. Um, and I, I'd like to point out specifically, amongst uh, younger and older African-Americans. Now, the older African-American voting uh, demographic, they actually do support him in the, in the true sense of support. Uh, younger African-American voters, uh, 35 and under, 
say they are likely to vote for him, but not because they truly support him, only because it would be an anti-Trump vote, because there's really no other alternative, unless you want to vote for Kanye West or write him in. Well, that was my next question. Uh, Kanye West, uh, <laughs> on the face of it, is absurd, but in this election, I suppose anything can happen. Anything goes, George. Uh, yeah. Uh, is he seriously going to run? And what's the mechanics of him running? And would Kim well, Kardashian be a good first lady? Well, is Melania Trump a good first lady? I mean, what are the standards we go by for first lady? I don't think we elect people based on first lady. Um, but with Kanye West, his wife, though she supports him, she's trying to stand by her man. Uh, Miss Kardashian is afraid that Kanye West, who suffers from uh, bipolar depression, is currently going through a, a manic episode, and she thinks it'll last a few weeks. She's revealed that to the press, the Hollywood press, anyway. Uh, he's escaped to Wyoming, of all places, maybe to think or to clear his head. Uh, but he has so far missed several, uh, several poignant FEC uh, filing deadline dates for several states. Uh, we have what, what's coming up here. We have Arkansas, California, Georgia, Illinois, Colorado, Florida, New York State. Those are coming up. And so far, the FEC says he has not filed any paperwork to run for president whatsoever. If he misses out on those states, it's, it's something over 180 uh, electoral votes that he'd be missing out of uh, that, that are, you know, out of 538 that are available. So I don't know at this point that he is truly a serious candidate so much as either this is a publicity stunt or according to his wife possibly a manic episode that he's suffering which people shouldn't make fun of people should probably use this moment if it is a, a manic episode that he's experiencing in the public eye use this as a moment to discuss uh, mental health in this country in your country and how many people it really impacts across the board and use this moment for something good rather than something divisive. What about our, uh, our own colleague, uh, Governor Jesse Ventura? He was my great hope, uh, but it looks, like he, it looks like he won't be on the ballot either, doesn't it? I don't think, I haven't spoken to Jesse lately, um, but from what I've seen, I, I don't believe he has filed any FEC paperwork. Um, I think he would have been a great candidate. He's got a great platform and a lot of supporters uh, because right now it's down to a, a two horse race and nobody likes that in this country. We're used to it, but nobody likes it. Um, so far, you know, if a third party candidate were to appear, you know, someone besides Howie Hawkins, who's the Green Party and God bless him, uh, he comes on the show. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a good following, but not enough to gain any um, primary uh, primary points there to put him on the ballots anywhere, unfortunately. And lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, Manila, uh, what, uh, what, what's, what's the standing now uh, of the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, the anti-police moves, uh, um, free zones being established in the center of Seattle and so on? Has that all just gone up like a rocket and come down like a stick or is it still a thing? Well, certainly BLM is a thing. The CHOP or CHAZ zone have pretty much been, they've died. The, the municipality has dismantled that. The attempted 
CHOP zone or CHAZ zone in D.C. The municipality has dismantled that. Uh, as much as people wanted to say that the mayor of Washington, D.C. supports BLM by her painting Black Lives Matter down, uh, you know, across from 1600 Pennsylvania, that's all show. She also voted to give more money to the police, uh, expanding different corrections policies. Um, that's all, you know, lipstick on a pig. Uh, so BLM is definitely a thing. Let's not take the wind out of their sails. They will definitely uh, sway the election one way or another. Either it'll give rise to a strong third party, but somebody like Joe Biden, who is an establishment Democrat, and key to the 1994 crime bill, key to mass incarceration. He was the, the Senate Judiciary Chair in 1994 that advocated for mass incarceration along with the Clintons. So a lot of young people know that part about history and are not thrilled about that. Um, so the BLM group, I think we can compare to um, 10, 12 years ago when we saw the rise of the Tea Party movement. Once upon a time, it was a movement and then it became a political arm. So I think we can look to see BLM become the left's version of the Tea Party and have their own platform and their own uh, politicians who will run for office. Manila Chan, thanks for joining us on board the Sputnik. See you next week. Uh, you got I it, hope. George. Thank you. Where are the incriminating Epstein tapes? A, Langley, B, Tel Aviv, or C, Sleeping with the Fishes? You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Let's take the first call uh, of the evening from Federico in London. Go ahead, Federico. Hello, George. I want to talk, uh, to talk about uh, the Russians paying the Taliban yes. to kill Americans. Yes. Um, well, it simply doesn't make sense. The Russians actually cannot possibly benefit um, by helping the Taliban. Um, I have seen a number of uh, pieces of evidence that the Taliban are moving into Central Asian republics and uh, causing huge amounts of trouble there. And the Russians would be insane to encourage that because uh, they themselves had the you know, period of war in Afghanistan, and it was really the Taliban who caused maximum amount of damage. Uh, to the forces. Um, so when you think of it, both politically, economically, from a security point of view, Russia has got no interest whatsoever helping Taliban. There are lots of other uh, groups who Russia could help because they are, they are more moderate and perhaps even a little bit progressive, but not the Taliban. They are the absolute most fanatical um, of uh, Wahhabi soldiers, of Wahhabi Muslims. And um, so the, the very idea that the, the, the Americans are saying uh, um, Russia is, is trying, you know, to sort of uh, uh, help uh, American soldiers, the, uh, Russia can do that in Syria much easier without paying anybody. Well, uh, the head of American intelligence says the story is nonsense. Uh, the head of the American armed forces says the story is nonsense. The President of the United States says the story is nonsense. It's the enemies of Donald Trump uh, that have, uh, have inflated this 
uh, story, but without providing a scintilla of evidence to back it up. It is, uh, in essence, pure fake news. Uh, but it misses also the point that you just alluded to, that it is Russia that is fighting these Islamist fanatics in Syria. And the United States is on the side of the fanatics in Syria. Am I right? That, yeah, that is precisely the point. And uh, uh, you cannot be actually fighting the same people at one corner of the world and um, backing them with money at the other. It, it may, maybe United States is capable of that kind of duality <laughs> and insanity, but, but, but not the Russians. Russians always act with great deal of um, thought and, and, and they are... They well, don't yeah, ra rather more caution, <laughs> yeah, rather more caution. Stuff. Thanks uh, very much indeed for the call. Here's the numbers, 02077 982 255. If you're calling uh, in the UK, that's 02077 982 255. Or if you're calling from the United States, it's 001757 744 And uh, of course, you can also tweet us, tweet me at George Galloway or at RTUK preferably uh, both of us. And don't forget to vote on my poll number one. Now, every week I do a short uh, for RT. This one has racked up record numbers too. It's on Ghislaine Maxwell. Take a look at this. The suicide of Ghislaine Maxwell in the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York City would come as a surprise to absolutely no one in the world except perhaps Ghislaine Maxwell. The fugitive socialite has finally been bagged by the feds. It took them more than a year to do so, which is a surprise considering she was tucked away in plain sight in New Hampshire. As if on cue, her closest confidant, Laura Goldman, began popping up in the British media. Thanks to the Philadelphia Enquirer, I can reveal that this woman who's been in every newspaper in Britain and most television stations, assuring the British that Ghislaine Maxwell will ensure that no harm comes to Prince Andrew, turns out herself to be a fugitive. The feds had to extradite her from Israel, whereafter she was convicted of extortion. So she is a proven liar, and she may be lying about Ghislaine Maxwell's friendship with her. But taking it at face value, Ghislaine Maxwell will not be spilling the beans on the rich and powerful men, some of them royals, some of them ex-presidents, some of them would-be presidents, some of them ex-prime ministers. More than one ex-prime minister appears in Jeffrey Epstein's dirty black book, and some of them, on multiple occasions, stayed as a guest of the convicted child sex criminal Jeffrey Epstein. And Ghislaine Maxwell is accused by literally dozens of young women, girls, even children at the time, of participating in sexual assaults, 
and rapes against them. It doesn't get much more serious. According to Laura Goldman, it's all Epstein's fault. Most women in prison, she says, are there because of a man. Laying the groundwork, no doubt, for an attempt to shift all culpability to the conveniently dead Jeffrey Epstein. But Ghislaine Maxwell uh, will be very lucky to escape a prison sentence of 30 to 40 years, in other words, the rest of her life. And the only way to escape it is to cooperate with the law enforcement agencies, to cough, to sing like a canary to the feds. Will she do so? Well, that's what puts her life in danger. Because if she did tell all about President Clinton, about Hillary Clinton, about Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and explain why ex-Prime Minister Tony Blair and his sidekick Peter Mandelson first were attracted uh, to the multi-millionaire rapist Jeffrey Epstein, then clearly she'd bring a lot of people down with her in exchange for a restricted sentence. That's why we're all so worried about her. I'm worried that as soon as she went into jail, we were told that she was at risk of COVID-19 and was now being isolated for a period of 14 days. Being isolated in the Metropolitan Detention Center in New York carries with it all kinds of risks and perils. So will she sing? Will she commit suicide like her late father, the robber baron, British publisher and British MP Robert Maxwell? Or will she be pushed off the back of a boat, metaphorically speaking, as he probably was? Robert Maxwell and Ghislaine Maxwell have very close ties to the intelligence community. The Epstein affair, to me, is only explicable as an intelligence operation. The sex, sordid, disgusting, illegal as it was, is only the tip of the iceberg. The question is, who were Maxwell and Epstein working for? What have they done with the videos and recordings of these rich and powerful men, all recorded in every room in the house, including the bathroom in the townhouse in Manhattan? Where are those films now? Where are the Maxwell tapes? Where are the Epstein tapes? Never mind follow the money, though that is also interesting. Follow the tapes. If you find the tapes, you'll find the people that Ghislaine Maxwell might well be persuaded to betray in exchange for a lighter sentence. Or you might find the reason why, sadly, in a few weeks from now, Ghislaine Maxwell is no more. So, look after yourself, Ms. Maxwell. Mind how you go. Have something to say? Do you disagree with George? Then call us now and give us your view. Now, a lot of response to the opinion poll. Uh, Eric says the deep state has them and they will never see the light of day. Corruption everywhere. And by email, James says, George, I'd like to hear your views on... No, I'm not reading that one out. 
And Joseph says, where has all the money gone for the NHS fundraising? Only 20 million has been spent so far. Who has the rest? Additionally, what has it been spent on? I found out that just giving has been creaming off the money. That's not an allegation we can associate with, I should say. I've no idea of the truth of that. Nearly 400,000 from the NHS, 200,000 from the Grenfell Fund and 300,000 from the Manchester Bombing Fund. Nice when you can cash in on someone else's misery. As I say, I've no idea if those allegations are true. Rene says, Kanye West, should he really be discussed as a candidate for presidency? Well, Donald Trump is the president. Uh, Jason says, no way that Trump will be on any tape. Well, I don't think you can say that uh, uh, unequivocally. Uh, why not? Is Trump as pure as the driven snow? Uh, I mean, I can think of uh, more likely candidates, uh, but uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was very clear. Two prominent US politicians having sex with minors, and she's got it on tape. Lucas says, Trump is not on tape. Wishful thinking for some. Trump is bringing down the paedophile rings. Honestly, some of you live on another planet. Why do you think they fight him so much with everything they have? Because they are fighting for their lives, says Lucas, loyally. James from Zimbabwe, all love, Mr. Galloway. Thank you, uh, James. And Dex says, must say, this man talks sense. And on YouTube, Biohacker says, I will say this and say it for the last time. Biden should be in jail and locked up for the rest of his senile life. Well, the rest of his life will not be long, I suspect. He looks like a man uh, doddering towards the exit, if uh, I can put it that way. And so unusual attention, surely, should now be given to who he picks as the vice president, because that vice president has an extraordinarily high likelihood of automatically assuming the presidency at some stage of a Joe Biden first term. And therefore, a great deal of attention and firepower will be trained upon whoever uh, Joe Biden picks as his running mate. once said. Now, Andy is in Washington. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Andy. Uh, hello, Mr. Galloway. Uh, long-time listener uh, and first-time talker. Uh, thank you for having me on. Most welcome. Um, I agree with Yeah, uh, I agree with you with everything you're saying uh, and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. However, uh, the reason for my calling uh, was actually having with, more with your side of the pond today. Um, uh, I, I acknowledge that you've been a long time uh, for that. Um, I do remember in the past, I believe you've made some statements regarding uh, Scottish independence, however, where you mentioned that you were not in favor of it at the time. All of and my I life. Was wondering o only, only all of my life. I've been, all of your I, life, you, you were in favor of it or not no, in favor of it? I, I, I have been fighting against uh, the separatists in Scotland uh, since I was a teenager, since I was 15 years old. 
But I was wondering if you don't see some parallels between the advocacy for Palestinian independence and perhaps the advocacy for uh, Scottish independence from Westminster, because there's a lot of corruption that's taking advantage of Scotland. Well, it's a quite extraordinary comparison, uh, even coming from Washington. Uh, the Palestinian people are occupied militarily. They have no vote. They have no rights. Uh, they are gunned down. They are in tortured. They are uh, kept in prison for... ...obtains in Scotland. Scotland has uh, every democratic right uh, to leave Britain anytime. It's been trying to do so... ...of the SNP, but the Scottish people keep frustrating them because the Scottish people don't want to break up this small country of ours. And now the Palestinian people have no right of self-determination. The Scottish people have every right of self-determination and exercised it in a once-in-a-lifetime, or at least once-in-a-generation, referendum uh, just six years ago and decisively voted to remain in Britain. So I'm not sure what comparison uh, you have managed to discern, but please tell me. Well, a lot of the Better Together promises were false, and I do agree, of course, that the Palestinian situation is uh, much more perilous. I mean, as far as humanitarian concerns, of course, there is no comparison, but I still see false promises to get their banner, well, and then I, you don't I, deliver I, I have no idea what they promise. I have no idea what false promises you're talking about, but to compare people who are literally shot in the head uh, for uh, raising their flag, uh, people who have never been allowed in, uh, in, in more than 50 years to cast a single vote uh, to affect the way in which they are governed and occupied, uh, to make that comparison uh, with what you call false promises is frankly obscene, Andy. Well, we've lost Andy. Let's go to Eves in Idaho. Go ahead, Eves. Hello, George. Uh, I, w I wanted to go, to go back on a short that you did on uh, Venezuela uh, two weeks ago. Yes. Okay, because I think that uh, I'm going. I think that you proved, but you didn't maybe articulate it the way I'm going to articulate it. You proved that government cannot. It's not their job to recognize country. You proved it because your proof goes as follows. You say, let's suppose that government recognize other government and not the United Nations. Then any government who has assets of the other government in his country can just say that he's going to give this asset to, to a friend, you see? Yes. And so it is an absurdity, you see? So your show, what I wanted to say is that your, your short proves that it is only the job of the United Nations to determine who is the government of a country. It cannot be other governments. Otherwise, well, it's dysfunctional. Yeah, uh, it's...
Four, I think you're old enough as continued Cambodia. After the revelation about the attempted genocide uh, in then Kampuchea, now Cambodia. Uh, we did so despite the fact that Pol Pot territory, uh, but for Cold War reasons, continued to recognize one of the greatest mass murderers in the history of human affairs. Uh, so we have been here before, Eve. Yes, uh, that's true. But you see, uh, my, my point is that there is here a question of, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you listen to our Secretary of State, he tells you because, you know, he wants to tell you about the Venezuelan constitution and all that. But there is a mathematical argument that it cannot work this way. It would be dysfunctional. Every country uh, would find um, somebody, you know, to give the assets that they hold this person. I mean, it, it's an absurdity. And also, uh, if you let me, uh, can I make a, a remark on Afghanistan? Hello? Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. George Galloway. And the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Well, uh, just as I told you how many people were watching and listening, uh, we're getting that familiar gremlin uh, feeling. And apparently once or twice, maybe more, uh, my sound was interfered with and cut short. Uh, my apologies for that. Uh, but the show goes on, 02077 and the US number 001-757-744. Eight zero. You can tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News. Let's go to the news just a few minutes early so we can see if we can sort this problem out. 
The news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Radio Sputnik News. At least 33 U.S. states have now experienced an increase in new coronavirus cases compared to last week. A total of 61,352 new cases were recorded and 685 new virus-related deaths. A total of 3,245,925 cases of coronavirus have been recorded in the United States by the end of the day on Saturday, according to Johns Hopkins University. Since the pandemic began, at least 134,000... feared wearing a mask would make him look weak and that it would shift the focus away from the economic recovery. He has also retweeted messages making fun of his Democratic presidential rival, Joe Biden, for wearing a face mask. A COVID-19 vaccine could be rolled out across the country in the first half of next year if trials are successful, according to a leading UK scientist. Professor Robin Shattock, who heads a team developing a coronavirus vaccine at Imperial College London, has said enough doses would be available for everyone in Britain if trials go really well. Speaking today, he said, we anticipate if everything goes really well, we'll get an answer as to whether it works by early next year. So far, 15 volunteers have been vaccinated, but Professor Shattock says this will be ramped up in the coming weeks to include another 200 to 300 patients but he warned that there was no certainty that any of the vaccines currently being developed would work. Walt Disney World Resort has begun to reopen in Florida despite a coronavirus surge across the US state. The site's Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom opened on Saturday. Epcot and Disney's Hollywood Studios are expected to follow from the 15th of July. Visitors will be required to wear face masks and adhere to other safety measures across the complex in Orlando. More than a quarter of a million cases of COVID-19 have been reported in Florida, along with 4,197 deaths. 
Disney first closed the resort in March during the early months of America's outbreak, while infections were largely concentrated in New York and California at first. Florida is amongst several states recording a rise in coronavirus cases in recent weeks. In Orange County, where the resort is based, authorities have reported 16,630 cases, some of the highest numbers in Florida. Some of its competitors, Universal Orlando and SeaWorld Orlando, reopened to visitors several weeks ago. The former U.S. Special Counsel Robert Mueller, in a very rare move, has defended his office's prosecution of Trump adviser Roger Stone, saying he is still a convicted felon, and rightly so, in light of the president's commutation of Stone's jail sentence. He said he lied about the identity of his intermediary to WikiLeaks. He lied about the existence of written communications with his intermediary. He lied by denying he had communicated with the Trump campaign about the timing of WikiLeaks releases. He, in fact, updated senior campaign officials repeatedly about WikiLeaks, and he tampered with a witness, imploring him to stonewall Congress. He added, because his sentence has been commuted, he will not go to prison, but his conviction stands. Trump on Friday commuted the prison sentence of his longtime friend. The announcement came just days before Stone was set to report to a federal prison in Georgia. Polls are voting in a presidential election seen as the battle for the country's future and its strained relations with the European Union. The second round pits incumbent Andre Duda, an ally of the Conservative government, against socially liberal Warsaw Mayor Rafał Trotskowski. A Duda win would herald controversial changes to the judiciary and continued opposition to abortion and gay rights. Trotskowski backs a more progressive agenda and an active role in the EU. Duda toppled the first round of voting with a convincing lead but fell short of the 50% needed to win outright. But Trotskowski expects to win the support of most of those who voted for other candidates and a close result is predicted. And finally, a new painting by Sanyu, who's been hailed as the Chinese Matisse, has sold for over 258 million Hong Kong dollars. That's more than 20 million pounds. Sold for that incredible price at auction last week, confirming his status as one of the most sought-after names in the lucrative Asian art market. Painted in the 1950s, Quatrenu features four reclining female figures in the French-Chinese painter's distinctively saturated style. The artwork led Sotheby's first major sale in Hong Kong since the coronavirus disrupted its live auction schedule, becoming the evening's most expensive lot after a 10-minute bidding war between four collectors. It's just the latest astronomical price paid for a work by Sanyu, who went largely unrecognised during his lifetime and was effectively destitute upon his death in Paris in 1966. Skyrocketing prices reflect a surge in interest from Asian collectors whose spending power now significantly shapes the global auction market. Between the year 2000 and 2019, the price of Sanyu's work jumped by more than a thousand percent. According to experts, his brushstrokes and a sense of proportion are truly Matissean. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. Listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Coming up in the next few minutes, Whitney Webb, the famous investigative journalist who broke the story of Epstein and has been ahead of the pack throughout. Uh, she's uh, joining us in the next few minutes, as I say. The poll is running. Where are the incriminating Epstein tapes? 
A. Langley, Virginia. B. Tel Aviv. C. Sleeping with the Fishes. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Uh, now, Sid says, I grew up in the same area as George Galloway in Dundee. But what I can't understand is, where did he get that weird accent? A lot of people like my accent. I get paid uh, to speak on television and radio, Sid. I don't know uh, about you. Uh, and I did leave Dundee 40 years ago, so perhaps it's not quite as acute as yours probably is, but a planing and a ninging in an ah, if you don't mind. And on Facebook, Kayuta says, I enjoy the show, Sani from Nigeria. And Kalim says, watching from Karachi in Pakistan. And Paul says, watching from Madeira in Portugal. Aaron says, Homer Simpson would make a good president. It would be nice to see a bald man president. Gerald Ford was bald, and so was uh, President Eisenhower. But you're right, it's been a while uh, since someone who didn't have good hair uh, was the president. And Spring says, Maxwell may end up like Epstein. Whatever happened to her, wait until she's released all the evidence that is involved. Now, as I say, uh, the great uh, Whitney Webb, the famous investigative journalist, was ahead of the pack on the Epstein story. Let's see what she makes of it now. Whitney Webb, thank you very much indeed for joining us again. When we first talked uh, about this, it was a somewhat obscure story, uh, but it's now the biggest story in the world. How did we get here and what are we still missing? Well, there's definitely a lot we're still missing, um, despite the fact that, that this has gotten a lot of media attention. What has consistently been overlooked by the media are the ties of this entire operation by Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell to intelligence, um, and that this was largely sponsored um, by Israeli military intelligence, but also with the complicity, the complicity, sorry, of U.S. intelligence. And this has consistently been overlooked because, you know, um, digging into that fact exposes that this was state-sponsored and that accountability, in order for real accountability ac accountability to happen, there has to be accountability for those state sponsors, not just the public faces or what are now the public faces of this sexual blackmail operation, which was first Jeffrey Epstein and now is Ghislaine Maxwell. Well, uh, I, I concur uh, with that. Indeed, I said as much, though not as well, uh, uh, in my introduction. Uh, this whole Epstein affair is only explicable as an intelligence uh, operation. Uh, the fact that uh, some of the most prominent individuals associated with Epstein continued to associate with him even after his conviction uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, even a member of the British royal family uh, continued to uh, rub shoulders, at least shoulders, uh, with him uh, despite that criminal conviction. Uh, and the uh, leniency uh, that was applied uh, upon his conviction, the unwillingness to prosecute him for all the crimes on which uh, the police had evidence at the time, uh, the sheer scale of the funding of Epstein, who had no visible means uh, of uh, generating the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that he was able to deploy and spend and uh, used to corrupt others. Uh, and the fact that all these uh, uh, big politicians uh, were around him like uh, flies around 
you know what, uh, all seems to indicate uh, that they were compromised uh, by him and Ghislaine Maxwell. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, I, would, I mean, I would certainly agree with that to an extent, but uh, I mean, they could also have been part of uh, numerous other connections and, and um, you know, spheres of involvement of Epstein. For example, Epstein was not just involved in the sexual blackmail operation. He was involved in a lot of financial crimes, uh, first through his main banking vehicle, Bear Stearns, which later became, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan after Bear Stearns collapsed in 2008. And of course, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and, and you know, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell through her father, for example, had connections to people that had previously been involved in Iran-Contra, who of course were again prominent in the George W. Bush White House. And so, um, and also had ties to, of course, the, the Clintons and people in, in those spheres as well. So, of course, you know, it's it's essentially a swamp. So some of them may have been directly compromised by the sexual blackmail operation, while others may have, you know, uh, been associated with that sort of criminal nexus, I guess you could say, but not necessarily compromised, um, but certainly aware of, of what was going on. Because we have reports um, from, his, you know, in the 90s talking about Epstein being CIA and Mossad linked. Back in 1992, the first article about him and his association with Ghislaine Maxwell that surfaced in the British press. Then we have another article that was in the Evening Standard, I believe, in 2003, talking about how Ghislaine Maxwell was known to have parties where she would host young girls and brandish whips and train them in sexual techniques to please older men. So this is something that has been that was known well before Epstein's arrest by you know the people in these uh, you know elite circles, uh, both socially and, and politically elite circles, um, and they were complicit in this the entire time. They didn't necessarily have to be compromised by that, but you know by after the year 2000, this was well known to have been going on. No. Uh it turns out that she was tucked away in a cottage called Tucked Away in New Hampshire uh, all of this time. It's inconceivable that the FBI didn't know that, isn't it? And if they did yes. know it, why have they waited all this time uh, even to formally question her? Well, what's interesting is that she was first uh, reported to have been in that area back in August of last year, um, staying at uh, the home of her alleged boyfriend, Scott Borgeson, who has ties to Eric Schmidt, the former CEO um, of Google. And immediately after that had been reported and appeared to have been uh, uh, tie, uh, reported as, as credible, there was this uh, photo that came out showing Ghislaine being in Los Angeles at an In-N-Out burger that was later, sh later shown to be a photoshopped uh, forgery, essentially, making people think that, in fact, she was not on the East Coast, but the West Coast. And then a few days later, Christine Maxwell, Ghislaine's older sister, is found, uh, is photographed just miles from this mansion where she and her boyfriend were allegedly allegedly staying, loading up uh, multiple bags, numerous suitcases uh, into an SUV and declined to comment. Uh, Christine Maxwell later claimed that she was staying at a hotel nearby for a few days, but it's kind of odd why she would need eight suitcases or so um, for a trip to Massachusetts that lasted only two to three days. Uh, right. So there's definitely some odd things that have been going on there. Um, you know, since August of last year, she was also allowed to buy a home the home that she was arrested in, that this tucked away mansion. Uh, she purchased it seven months ago, allegedly under a name that the FBI couldn't identify her as, uh, as being Ghislaine Maxwell, but the name she used was G Max, which is hardly um, <laughs> that, um, you know, well I hidden, Sherlock, I guess you could Sherlock say. Sherlock Holmes would have walked that one out. <laughs> 
Right, especially, you know, consider all of the, the, you know, the sprawling surveillance system of U.S. intelligence and, you know, domestic intelligence like the FBI and claims that they're unable to track this woman, you know, when they allegedly, you know, have, have used, you know, after 9-11, you know, the need to track and surveil to increase their budgets and their, um, you know, surveillance capabilities and they're allegedly unable to keep track of this woman. I really don't buy it. Um, the fact that she wasn't arrested for, you know, over a year, I also think is really telling, as is the fact that this indictment um, that, you know, that she is now facing admits that she was involved in the sexual assault of these minors, but she is not charged for that. What she is charged for is enticing them to cross state lines to participate in those illegal sex, sex acts, but she is not charged for participating in those illegal sex acts that she brought those, those minors to, along with Jeffrey Epstein, which I think is incredibly scandalous and also shows the fact that I think they're going to attempt to try and let her uh, off relatively leniently, allow her to strike a deal that she will give information to them or uh, these alleged tapes that she has uh, to, you know, U.S. intelligence or to the FBI in exchange for leniency or something of the sort. We already have her lawyers requesting bail, um, $5 million bail and claiming that she won't be a flight risk because, um, under the conditions of bail, they propose that she'll be GPS monitored and unable to travel um, and things like that. And given the leniency of the charges that she is facing, it's actually quite possible that could happen. Though, if they wish to, you know, if there is an, an effort by, you know, the Bill Barr Department of Justice to sort of take her out of the picture, as was done with Jeffrey Epstein last year, I mean, that is also a possibility. It all hinges on what happens in two days' time on July 14th um, at, at the next hearing in the, uh, in the Ghislaine Maxwell case. Well, she's clear using the existence of this compromise material in the British press today it is claimed uh, on her behalf uh, that she has two tapes uh, of two prominent US politicians uh, having sex with minors uh, I think we can we can take a guess at who she wants us to think those two prominent US politicians are uh, but this could just be moonshine, couldn't it? It could be uh, uh, just the, the chaff uh, that's, uh, that's thrown up. Because after all, if your thesis and my thesis uh, are, is correct, then, then the authorities already know uh, who did what to whom and where. Correct. No, I think that's absolutely true. Um, like I said, you know, Israeli and U.S. intelligence have had access, at least elements of those intelligence uh, apparatus, have had access to uh, the names of the people involved. I mean, a lot of the names involved people in the public now, right? So why wouldn't the FBI and the CIA and their counterparts in, in Israel, right, also know that? So I think it's um, sort of a political move. It could potentially... Um, this, uh, you know, claim that there's these two unnamed politicians who could be exposed as pedophiles, for example, and have their careers ended, um, is coming at a very interesting time, you know, in U.S. politics, um, in an election year, just months away from an election, right, um, that could have major ramifications for either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Um, so, of course, you know, it's definitely very interesting to consider the timing of all of this as well. Um, but it's definitely, um, I think, you know, let's consider too that Ghislaine Maxwell is a fundamentally untrustworthy 
a person, as is most of her family, particularly, you know, having learned these behaviors from her father to whom she was extremely close, right? So, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell's interest right now is self-preservation, preserving herself, but it's also very possible that some of the intelligent sponsors of the sexual blackmail operation want these two particular politicians to do something they're not currently doing and are exerting this as pressure for some, you know, currently unknown purpose, but, you know, it remains to be seen. What can you tell us about this woman, Laura Goldman, who popped up last week in literally every single British newspaper and on two flagship uh, British television shows, claiming to be uh, a, a close confidant uh, of Ghislaine Maxwell. As I pointed out just half an hour ago, it turns out she herself had had to be extradited by the United States from Israel to face extortion charges on which she was convicted. Uh, but she was presented to the British public in this so-called mainstream media as a bona fide chum uh, of Ghislaine Maxwell, assuring the British people uh, that Miss Maxwell would never allow any harm to come uh, to our own Prince Andrew. Uh, well, I, I haven't followed Laura Goldman specifically, but it has been kind of frequent over the past year or so to have these sort of uh, stories pop up um, in, in, you know, especially in tabloid media, claiming that this person or that person has alleged knowledge of where Ghislaine Maxwell is or certain things that she was doing. And later it turns out to be false. This appears to be um, just another incident um, related to that, attempting to capitalize on top of the media frenzy around it. But also, you know, it, it could have been intended in the sense that, you know, her coming out, uh, this Laura Goldman woman being so heavily promoted and what she's saying, of course, distracts from other aspects of the case that are, you know, accurate, can be confirmed and are fundamentally more important, right? So, in, in sort, um, and this has happened on numerous occasions, uh, trying to keep the focus of the Epstein case on certain uh, focal points that are, that, you know, are part of the case, but not necessarily important to getting at the heart of the matter, right? So I think this is just another example of that, of that playing out and sort of distracting from, you know, the extent of Ghislaine Maxwell's crimes in the entire operation. I mean, media in general have been portraying her using terms like socialite, you know, philanthropist, things like this to describe a woman who um, was directly involved in orchestrating one of the largest sexual blackmail and sex trafficking of minor operations in the world. It was a global operation on behalf of intelligence agencies and who herself has uh, partaken in the sexual assault and rape of minors. Um, and the fact that, you know, this is the type of media attention this woman is receiving, um, I think is, you know, a scandal in and of itself. Uh, well, it's certainly true that not many celebrities were celebrating her final arrest. Uh, and uh, one actually said, who hasn't been photographed with Ghislaine Maxwell? Well, me for one. Uh, right. The, uh, the, the normalization, if you like, of Ghislaine Maxwell uh, is further added to uh, by Goldman's claim uh, that most women in prison uh, are there because of a man. Uh, they're going to try and portray her as someone who was merely love-struck. It was nothing to do with these hundreds yeah. of millions and nothing to do with the intelligence operation. It was just that she was following her man. Uh, do you expect that to be a runner in the U.S. courts? 
Um, well, you know, I think the U.S. court system may actually use that as an excuse to give her this leniency that her lawyers are arguing for. And let's keep in mind that Ghislaine Maxwell is being represented by a former assistant attorney of the same office that is currently prosecuting her and has direct ties uh, to that and was actually opposed to the recent firing of the um, the Manhattan District Attorney Jeffrey Berman, um, which was actually um, done by Bill Barr, and people had assumed that Bill Barr had removed him in order to uh, complicate the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell in some way. But why is her defense attorney arguing against that? Um, Bill Barr, of course, has his own conflicts of interest with the Jeffrey Epstein scandal with his father, who used to work for U.S. intelligence, having hired Jeffrey Epstein back in the 70s, right? So there is a lot of oddities about the court case in general, but I think that this whole thing, um, this whole narrative is being one mostly for the public to try and set up some sort of leniency or deal making between uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and prosecutors that will see her uh, be allowed to post bail, um, which I think is unfortunate, but I, I, it seems to be the direction things are pointing at this point in time. That would seem to indicate that you think her life is safe, uh, that she's not going to uh, suffer the same suicide that Epstein himself did. If she posts bail, then yes. But if she is not allowed to post bail, then I think it will be a repeat of exactly what happened with Epstein. And they've also set up that narrative to an extent, too. So it all, like I said, hinges on the decision that is made on this July 14th hearing. And finally, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, if politicians uh, were compromised uh, by an intelligence agency or agencies filming them, committing serious sexual offences, not just career-ending uh, uh, activity, but uh, uh, likely to lead to their imprisonment. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more powerful hold over politicians than that. I wonder what political decisions, stances, attitudes are uh, directly attributable to the uh, existence of such compromise. Well, um, one clue towards that is we can look at the, the types of U.S. politicians and their involvement, um, and, and what they've been involved in, the, the, the politicians that have sort of been publicly roped into this thing. Um, a lot of them were figures during the Clinton administration, um, Bill Richardson, Clinton himself, and also George Mitchell. Mitchell and a lot of those, um, a lot of the, um, a lot of them were involved in negotiations with U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East specifically. Um, it's also worth pointing out that Ghislaine Maxwell's nephew was appointed to a post in the Hillary Clinton State Department where he was actually in charge of the State Department's uh, policy regarding Middle Eastern affairs, right? So there has been this um, odd link between, uh, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal and, and the Maxwells and that particular uh, uh, aspect of U.S. foreign policy over the years. Can you run that one past me again? The nephew <laughs> of Ghislaine Maxwell uh, was in charge of the Middle East desk in Hillary Clinton's State Department? Uh, that's correct, yes. He is the son of Isabel Maxwell, who was actually um, deeply tied to numerous, uh, uh, I guess you could say, heavy hitters in Israeli politics, the son of Itzhak Shamir, Yer Shamir. She gave a personal tour of um, 
uh, to Shimon Peres of the United States. She was involved in Israeli uh, technology firms, many of them with close ties to Israel's uh, military intelligence apparatus, um, and of course her sister Ghislaine as well. And her son was appointed, uh, Alex, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name, but it was the son with her first husband, um, was appoint who was also a Clinton donor, was appointed to this role in the State Department while Hillary Clinton, uh, while Hillary Clinton had ties to Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein themselves. Jeffrey Epstein was involved in the Clinton Foundation, um, and Ghislaine Maxwell was involved in the Clinton Global Initiative, was also a guest at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. Yeah, in the front row, uh, I seem to recall. What a tangled web, and we're very lucky that we have Whitney Webb to untangle it. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once again on the mother of all talk shows. So where are the incriminating Epstein tapes? Uh, the poll, A, Langley, 22%, B, Tel Aviv, 44%, C, Sleeping with the Fishes, 34%. Let us know uh, what you think. You've still got uh, more than half an hour to uh, vote on that. Rene says, did Epstein really die? Was there evidence of his suicide? And uh, Jeff says by email, I'm increasingly annoyed and angry at you trying to blame all the world's problems on capitalism. Moi, when in actual fact, socialism is an ideology that has resulted in more slavery in the history of human uh, than any other political ideology ever created. Uh, Jeff, give me a call, will you? I'd like to debate that one with you. 02077 982 255, uh, or if you're in the US, 001-757-744-4480. Or uh, if you're in Broadmoor and it's too late to call, call next week. Tony says, why are the UK and the US in total political chaos? Both countries appear ungovernable these days. And Gary says, did you see the way Marc Francois MP very smugly threatened the head of the British Army last week. I didn't actually, Gary, but I can quite imagine it. Marc Francois appears to me like uh, Captain Mannering of the uh, Home Guard uh, on the BBC uh, show. Um, now, let me uh, see. Yes, it's this week. This is the spot where I look at the momentous events for good or ill in this week in history that shaped what we are today. It was actually on this day that the Rolling Stones gave their first performance in the Marquee Club in London in 1962. My goodness, what a career that has been. Uh, Twelve years later, on the same day, one of the greatest managers in football history, Bill Shankly, retired from Liverpool FC. It was premature, he was only 60, and he would regret it until his death. And in 1998, on this day, Zinedine Zidane scored twice as France won its first World Cup, beating Brazil 3-0. A day later, on July the 13th, in 1923, the Hollywood sign was officially dedicated in the hills above Hollywood, Los Angeles. It originally read Hollywoodland, but the four last letters were dropped after renovation in 1949. That was a very smart move. And in 1943, the greatest tank battle in history ended with Russia defeating Germany at Kursk. 
Almost 6,000 tanks took part and almost 3,000 were lost by Germany. On July 14th in 1789, the French Revolution began with the fall of the Bastille prison. Bastille Day is a public holiday in France to this day. In 1933, all non-Nazi parties were banned in Germany. And in 1958, a group of Iraqi army officers staged a coup in Iraq, which overthrew the monarch, King Faisal. Uh, he was killed and his prime minister dragged through the streets uh, by a car, I think, uh, by rope. Iraq's coup leader uh, and prime minister, Abdelkarim al-Qasim, was later himself ousted and killed in 1963 in a coup led by the Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party. It's Arab Ba'ath Socialist Party, actually, what comes around. A day later, on July 15, 1995, thousands of Muslim refugees fled the captured so-called safe area of Srebrenica, forced out by the Bosnian Serbs. United Nations officials described it as the biggest ethnic cleansing operation in Europe since World War II. Some 40,000 women, children, and elderly people were ordered to leave where they had been under the protection of Dutch peacekeepers. What was not known then is that between 7,000 and 8,000 Muslim men were subsequently killed by Serb soldiers in the days following the fall of Srebrenica. On July 16th in 1940, Adolf Hitler ordered preparations for the invasion of Britain, Operation Sea Lion. And you see in my counterfactual novel, uh, the, it's called uh, uh, Queensway, it uh, deals with what might have happened if that Operation Sea Lion had been a success. But five years later to the day, Winston Churchill, Harry S. Truman, and Joseph Stalin gathered at Potsdam to discuss the fate of a defeated Germany. In 1936, on July 17th, Spanish generals Francisco Franco and Emilio Mola led a right-wing uprising beginning the Spanish Civil War. And in 1979, the left-wing Sandinistas took control of Nicaragua after 46 years of dictatorial rule by the Somoza family. An American president once said that Somoza might be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. And there's more on Nicaragua later. On July 18th in 1925, Adolf Hitler, him again, published Mein Kampf. The original title was the catchy four and a half years of struggle against lies, stupidity and cowardice. And in 2003, a body believed to be that of the British government scientist, Dr. David Kelly was found in Woodland, not far from his Oxfordshire home. I'm making a film about this and the murky doings which surround it, uh, which I hope will be aired shortly unless anything happens to me. And if it does, I did not go into those woods voluntarily. And that's it. That was the week that was. Let's go to North Carolina. Why wouldn't we? And hear from Mark. Go ahead, Mark. Hello, Mark. Hey, how you doing there, George? Yeah, good. Hey, nice George. to hear from you. Go, go hey, ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, I just want to go into Epstein a little bit, all right? Um, you know, I called you uh, 
I don't know, about a couple of months ago or so, about, you know, that I, I used to, at one time I was a correctional officer in Texas. Yeah. And uh, I've done my share of suicide uh, watches and all that. And um, there's no way I believe that Epstein killed himself at that point. Or I believe the government's story about the two sleeping officers. If they were asleep, they were drugged. And then they, re- then they either killed Epstein at that point or they smuggled them out probably to Israel. All right? I'm not sure. But I don't – this is – look, George, this government, both our, my government here in the United States and your government here in, in Britain are evil, plain and simple. I'm sorry. I got no use for most of them. There are a few good people in there. But for the most part, they're stark raving evil, both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And from what I can tell, with you guys, with the Tories and the um, Labor Party, they do not serve the people. We cannot trust them. I don't trust them. As far, I trust them as far as I can throw them, and that's not very far. Um, I think they need to be replaced. They need to be replaced quickly. Nobody in their right mind can believe that they're really doing everything they can to protect this this witch right now from killing herself or somebody killing her. If they did what was right, she wouldn't even be in that jail. She would either be in military custody in a very strict military post. Probably the best post would be a Marine brig, or she would be in the custody of U.S. Marshals, the witness protection program. They're also capable of, of guarding prisoners. Okay. And she would be hidden somewhere and they'd be using trusted deputy marshals. Okay. They would not be doing this, George. Okay, this is a setup. She knows enough to bring down the entire United States and probably the British government. And you know who she's working for? She's working in Mossad. Everything going on in our foreign policy, everything, especially favoring Israel, and even I believe a lot of the anti-Russian nonsense, is due to blackmail politicians. Okay, everything: the hatred of Putin, the um, the Syrian situation, trying to over- constantly overthrow Assad. What happened in Libya this is all due to blackmail politicians in this well, country, I, I, and it I, goes very deep. Actually, okay. actually, Russia has, uh, paradoxically, uh, very good relations with Israel, and uh, Putin with Netanyahu. Yeah, but they don't say- uh, Netanyahu uh, frequently pops yeah, up but- uh, in, in uh, Moscow. Uh, so we shouldn't be too formulaic uh, about these things. It's much more complicated than that, Mark. Yeah, but the thing is, Putin doesn't march to Netanyahu's orders either, okay? No, no, he he's doesn't, not, no. He's not recognizing the stolen heights that belong to Israel. He doesn't, he's not encur- basically encouraging Israel to take over the rest of Palestine. No, okay. no, to the contrary. <laughs> that, that's why I say paradox. It's a paradox. Uh, that's why I say it's a paradox. Uh, the Soviet Union recognized Israel uh, before the United States did. Uh, countries like Czechoslovakia, uh, then in the Soviet orbit, armed the Haganah, the uh, nascent Israeli armed forces. A huge number of Russian citizens live in Israel. Uh, many are dual citizens. Uh, and uh, notwithstanding the points you make, which are accurate, Uh, the policy of the Russian government uh, towards the Israel-Palestine question is much more balanced uh, than uh, other governments are. Uh, But on a personal level, if you like on a, I don't know what you'd say, on a a deep level, uh, relations between Russia and Israel are quite close. Yeah, 
Well, they are, but at the same time, Israel knows they can only cross certain lines with Russia, okay? And um, they're not going to get them to get... One, one thing I notice about Putin, he tries to be like a referee or like a lion tamer, surrounded by man-eating lions, and tries to keep, you know, keep things that way. And that's why he has a friendship, or at least relations with um, Erdogan, his relationship with uh, Netanyahu, some mm. of the worst butchers in the world today. Yet he tries to have relationships with other countries, too. He's got a great relationship with Assad. He's got, uh, you know, a great relationship with Iran. Okay? So he's like a lion tamer, basically, I think. Well, I think that is a very clever metaphor. Uh, someone should animate it or, uh, or uh, make it into a cartoon. Uh, I'm sure he would like that. Uh, thanks uh, very much indeed, Mark, uh, for that call. Uh, Tom is in Daventry on the FBI and Galen Maxwell. Go ahead, Tom. Hello, George. Uh, just a bit of wishful thinking, really. Mm -hmm. uh, it would just be nice if uh, Galen Maxwell would think to herself, well, actually, whatever happens, I'm dead, so I'm going to uh, bring a few down with me. That would be nice. But the reality of the situation is, well, my question is, if the FBI have information that could incriminate um, global politicians, that information is a currency, it's valuable. So does it mean then that we will actually never hear about that? Because well, uh, I thought Whitney's uh, answer to me on that was very telling. Uh, the two prominent US politicians that Ghislaine Maxwell says she has tapes of them uh, committing rape uh, against, uh, against children, uh, couldn't get more serious than that. Uh, that has perhaps been released in order to get those two uh, US politicians uh, to do something they haven't yet done or to stop doing something they are doing, to bend them, in other words, uh, to the deep state's will. What do you think of that? Yeah, you're probably right. You, you obviously know a lot more about it than I do, but I'll just, I, I don't know. I think with the agencies that are involved in this, you just think that uh, the idea of keeping that information mostly, or the most damaging parts of it, to themselves, so they can then use, still use it in the future, might be uh, possible. I don't, you know. Yes, uh, although um, if the thesis of Whitney and myself is correct, then the intelligence yeah. services have had the films all along uh, because the yeah. films were being made on their behalf. Uh, yeah. And the politicians thus entrapped were forever compromised and yeah. would do okay. whatever they were asked. Imagine if you were a politician and somebody actually had a film of you committing such a heinous, a repulsive, hellish, act, yeah. uh, then rather than yeah. see that released, uh, you wouldn't say yeah. no to anything, would you? No, that's correct, yeah. I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. It's, uh, it's, well, it's very She's in a powerful to... position, but she's also in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. Uh, if, Funny, yeah. if the feds are going to send her to prison for decades, then why wouldn't she use what she has? On the other mm. hand, if they think that she might use it, uh, then someone might kill her. So it all kind of points to the fact that she's going to be ending up like her boyfriend then? Well, uh, one, not necessarily. Uh, she might do a deal. Uh, she might get mm. uh, uh, probation. 
she might get sent out cleaning the streets of Florida or somewhere, I don't know, in an orange jumpsuit. Uh, they may mm -hmm. cut a deal with her that is sufficiently advantageous uh, that they can guarantee her silence forever. Uh, but if that's okay. not true, then all hell uh, will be let loose. Thanks uh, very much for that, uh, Tom. Let's take a 60-second break, shall we? Radio Sputnik. Hello, Peach of Express Woking. What is it you want? Oh, you want an ill-advised interview on the BBC? A cheese pizza, extra immature, and a raw bailout. No, we don't take taxpayers' money. Yeah, but we do take contactless. Would you like a receipt for that, Mr Prince? talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Okay. Uh, Kiel on Facebook says, the FBI can track Black Lives Matter protesters, but they can't track Maxwell. And Andy says, the Royals and the Clintons are untouchable. That's Andy of Windsor. I'm not sure if there's any relation. And on YouTube, Tony says, where did George get that hat? In Lisbon, actually. Uh, Timothy says, Whitney Webb is one of the best reporters there is. Thanks, George. And Renv says, if she has got tapes of underage sex, she should have handed them over without being forced to. What kind of creature is she? <laughs> well, the scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. And the same Renv says, Ghislaine is innocent. Please free her and stop saying nasty things. Love from Jimmy Savile. And Diri says, whatever happened to David Icke? Is he okay? He's never been okay since he played in goal for, was it Southampton or Leicester? I can't remember. Bob says, Ghislaine is a mega pimp for the elite. And on Twitter, Dr. Fath says, great show, Georgie boy, but must disagree regarding bald presidents. Haven't we got one now? What an intriguing thought, Doctor. How cynical. And Fra says they will ring Maxwell out to get all the tapes and photos. And once they are convinced she has given everything up, then they will kill her. Okay, the numbers 02077 982255. And if you're in the US, 001757744480. Or tweet me at George Galloway at RTUK News. And the, uh, the poll is uh, a bit slow, actually, 584 votes uh, so far, but Tel Aviv is heavily in the lead. It's up 2% on 44. Langley, I'm surprised, is way down at 22. Uh, that's what I'd be voting for, actually. Sleeping with the fishes at 34%, down one. I would say uh, not, because they're too valuable to be allowed uh, to be uh, sleeping with the fishes. And if they're sleeping with the fishes, somebody might fish them out. Uh, so you can call now. There are some lines free if you want to get on the show after 9 p.m. You've, uh, you've got the numbers. Now, 
Uh, Dr. Paul Oquist is the Minister for National Policies of the Presidency of the Republic of Nicaragua. And it's 41 years, exactly as I said, uh, of Nicaragua's revolution, which started on the 19th of July, 1979. It was a remarkable revolution. I remember how exhilarating it was. Uh, the proximate uh, or starting shot uh, was the taking of the puppet parliament of the Somoza dictatorship by a group of Sandinista guerrillas, fighters. I think the leader was Comandante Zero. Uh, they took uh, control of the parliament and uh, then thereafter they swept uh, to power. And when they got there, uh, they so transformed Nicaragua uh, from the feudal backwater that it was, with virtually no one able to read or write, with the life expectancy of the ordinary peasant in the fields in Nicaragua, uh, absurdly, ridiculously short, and uh, ill health uh, and general uh, levels of poverty that were an absolute disgrace uh, in 1979. And the transformation of Nicaragua was such that it became almost a poster child for uh, people who wanted to encourage countries to follow the path of independent development. And it was such a success story that the United States had to destroy it. And I was there uh, going back and forward. I was there uh, many, many times, a dozen times or more. Uh, and I saw the transformation uh, which the revolution uh, brought about, and I also saw the horror, uh, the evil of the counter-revolution, the contra-revolution that the United States uh, paid for. Now, uh, Dr. Paul Oquist is uh, coming up in just a moment, but let's take some calls. David is in Alaska. Go ahead, David. Good morning, George, and here, here, here for the the socialist countries of Latin America that have sustained themselves and so far prevailed against such horrible odds. So the, far, the, David. So far. Right. I, I take that into account. I'm I'm nearly seventy, and I've watched it all happen in the course of my lifetime. But um, the the focus of my call is uh, regarding Russia and supposed bounty gate and how so consistently the Russians have used peaceful means to circle around and, and avoid outright warfare with the United States or, or anybody else as a matter of principle, as a matter of seasoned di diplomacy. I mean, they are so good at what they do, and yet the, the U.S. continues with its bullying, assertive ways. And it, it just it goes so much against the grain of, of Russian diplomacy and their position in the world with a belligerent U.S. to do something so so fickle and so so mean spirited as this bounty business. Um, it it just it's inconsistent with their foreign policy and, and the diplomats they they put upon the world stage. And one one other thing is. To remember that this is part of the great game, as articulated by Halford McKinder back in 1906, and maintaining a world island for trade and domination of, of imperialism around the Russian state, China, and everybody else. I, I sent you a few emails to uh, 
document some of this stuff, but they are playing the long game, and this is just one more incident of a false flag to inflame the public. Well, I couldn't put it better, David. Uh, I won't. That's the call of the night so far. Thanks very much for making it. Let's go from Alaska to Miami. Why wouldn't you? Jonelle is in Miami and wants to talk about Epstein. Go ahead, Jonelle. Uh, good evening. Um, good afternoon, George. I've uh, watched a couple of your uh, documentaries on uh, the Jewish state and anti-Semitism. I guess they would they would put it as anti-Semitism, but you're not anti-Semitic at all. Not and at all, then, I no. feel like it, exactly. I feel like uh, what's going on with Epstein is out of control. It shows that our governments have such a hold over the people that we refuse to believe in the reality that's going on. I was a former inmate, did around seven years of my life for being uh, incarcerated for a crime that I did. And I went on what's called suicide watch, what, uh, what Jeffrey Epstein would have been on, supposedly. And when you're on suicide watch in any state facility, and I'm sure that in a, in a maximum security uh, federal facility that the rules are much more tended to because federal facilities are paid more and get much more funding. But in a state facility alone, I know that you have a guard in front of your door and cameras all around yourself. So to believe that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide without anybody knowing what happened and the body was able to get out of there in a van, no one was able to identify the body, is is beyond belief to me, and I can't go for it. But like I said, it just goes to show the reality that our governments have given us and that we say, okay, if the news tells us, if they tell us what happened, that's what happened. Well, uh, of course, uh, he wasn't just in a maximum security <laughs> facility. Uh, he was about to face the trial of the 21st century. Uh, this was the highest value, most controversial, prisoner in the United States of America. And we're asked to believe uh, not only that the security cameras failed, uh, but that not one but both of the guards that were supposedly watching the feed of the security cameras, both were asleep uh, on the job. Uh, and we're asked to believe uh, that with the paper sheets, Epstein successfully committed suicide. Now, I have seen uh, an interview uh, with uh, the world-leading expert on the bones around the neck and throat, and he concluded uh, that the force required to break the bone in the throat uh, that Epstein suffered uh, could not possibly be uh, done by uh, hanging by a paper sheet. Uh, it would have required far more brute force than that uh, to break that bone. As to whether or not he was smuggled out and perhaps alive and maybe living somewhere else, I can't quite bring myself to believe that. Uh, but I am absolutely certain uh, that Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. I'm absolutely certain about that. It uh, served the interests of too many powerful people, rich and powerful people, for Epstein not to make it to trial, uh, that the motive for dispensing with him uh, was so powerful 
the circumstances of the suicide so remarkable, ridiculously remarkable, uh, that I will never, ever believe it. Junel, thanks uh, for that call down in Miami. Now, Paul Oquist, Minister Paul Oquist, unfortunately is on the telephone rather than the Skype, uh, but I'm nonetheless glad to welcome him onto the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Minister, thank you finally for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, you're known as the Gringo Minister. Why? Because I was born and raised in the United States, and I was nationalized in Nicaraguan in 1981, and I, um, I re re renounced the U.S. citizenship in 1983 when there was the first of three uh, heavy moments in which a U.S. invasion seemed imminent. And as a um, Sandinista minister, uh, a government official at that time, not yet minister, but as a militant of the FSLN and as a Sandinista militiaman, I would defend the revolution. So it's very nasty to have two uh, nationalities at the same time, simultaneously, in two countries at war. So that, um, that solved the problem. Well, uh, it's a very noble uh, step. Uh, it's definitely one I would have taken myself, but uh, congratulations. Uh, to you but for we're kindred, we're kindred souls, George. We're kindred souls. We are, and we're appearing together on our round table quite soon. I'll, uh, I'll get the details of that and let everyone uh, know uh, about it. So now you're a minister in the, in the presidency. Uh, That's correct. How, how does that feel right now when the United States is reverting to type uh, the... Uh, all the dirty tricks that were played against the Sandinista government first time around uh, are now being played again. Well, this history goes all the way back to the 1850s, as you know, and includes the uh, assassination of Sandino after he had had dinner with President Sacasa, with whom he'd reached a peace deal by the National Guard, and the National Guard was... Um, was headed by Somoza, who was the last Marine left behind, and Arthur Lane Bliss, the U.S. ambassador, was directly involved in that. But then if we go back to the 1980s, uh, the CIA was directly planting mines in the port of, uh, of Corinto. It was attacking naval stations in Potosi, Corinto, Puerto Sandino, and someone del Sur and someone del Norte. And it was arming, it was financing, it was directing the, the Contra that were attacking us from Honduras and, and Costa Rica. So we're kind of used to it, as a matter of fact. It's been going on all the time. There's never been a, a moment in Nicaraguan history in which the United States was not trying to dominate Nicaragua. And in which, unfortunately, there was not a segment of the Nicaraguan population namely the uh, oligarchy that was willing to play that game and support that. While at the same time, there was always also a uh, patriotic element that was resisting that, going, going back to the fight against William Walker, uh, General Celedon, who resisted the U.S. Marines invading in, in 1912 to protect uh, U.S. economic interests, 
going back to Sandino's fight, uh, struggle against the Marine intervention from 1927 to 1934, the Somoza dictatorship and the people who resisted that, and then the great popular victory of, um, of, of the 19th of July, 1979, which, as you can appreciate from the foregoing, was quite a historic moment, a tremendous historic moment. What is uh, extraordinary is that the United States, having successfully destroyed uh, the Nicaraguan Revolution, uh, that you managed to come back, that you managed to win again, and are now some years into uh, your, your second time around, as it were. How does it feel comparatively this time to the last? Well, actually, there was different, very clearly different phases in the Sandinista Popular Revolution. The first phase was pre-1979, the struggle against the Somoza dictatorship, supported 100% to the very last minute by the United States. And then the second phase was the United States supporting ex-guardsmen and others to form a counter-revolutionary force, and the CIA also directly attacking Nicaragua, as the International Court of Justice in The Hague um, ruled in uh, the 27th of June of 1987 that the United States was responsible for all of those attacks. It was terrorism. They, they found them guilty of acts of terrorism in mining, mining the port of Corinto. That, that's correct, and not, uh, not informing about the presence of the mines. A Dutch sailor died as a result of his ship hitting one of those, uh, one of those mines. They also attacked the airport, which was uh, terrorism as well. So you had then the terrorism of the country and the countryside, which wreaked havoc with rape and pillage in the, in the countryside of Nicaragua, backed by the CIA. And then, of course, the fact that the war was financed after the U.S. Congress, led by Senators Kerry and Kennedy, cut off the official financing for the Contra. The Reagan administration broke not only international law, but also U.S. law by resorting to the import of uh, cocaine in the CIA planes from where they were shipped to Los Angeles, where a young entrepreneur turned them into coke cocaine that inundated the ghettos and barrios in the 1980s with tremendous profit that was funneled back to the, the Contra. The, the, the Iran Contra, George, was a spin. It was a spin that the, uh, the Reagan and Bush administrations could survive, whereas the real underlying scandal was the CIA cocaine crisis, the CIA introducing cocaine into the United States and poisoning millions of Americans so as to gain finance for their illegal war in Nicaragua. You're right, uh, a much bigger crime even than the crime of uh, secretly, illegally dealing with the Iranians uh, and, uh, and giving that money to the Contra. Uh, this was, that was just a few transactions. The cocaine was going on all the time. Yeah, and, the and it's going North on until now. I mean, the, yeah, the mass right. addiction of people in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, in the United States, right down the West Coast, uh, is directly attributable to the CIA 
selling cocaine to their own people to get money to give to the people that were trying to destroy your revolution. They could never defeat us militarily. They could never defeat us militarily. But uh, the uh, financial blockade, the commercial embargo, the uh, working uh, day and night to finance the war, at the end, just to show you how austere the austerity which the Nicaraguan people suffered, I think it would be equitable to, comparable to some other countries in World War II. All the unions were asking for, for their salary, was sugar, rice, and beans. Nothing else. Nothing else. No, no money, because the inflation was running at 30,000% a year. So what they wanted was sugar, rice, and beans, and that was it. And uh, cooking oil also. So that was it. Now, in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, the Frente Sandinista, after it was defeated in the election, had a loyal constitutional opposition to the three liberal governments, which were characterized by being uh, corrupt in the privatization of the, of the uh, public sector. It was corrupt and, and out-and-out thievery in one government, and then there was an extremely weak government. And the FSLN uh, was always as a loyal constitutional uh, opposition, even though each and every election in Nicaragua, the U.S. has always participated directly, directing the opposition against the FSLN. And it's quite a joke to hear the outrage in the United States that some foreign power might have been involved in a U.S. election when the U.S. has been involved in every Nicaraguan election that's ever been held. The FSLN is the father of democracy in Nicaragua. The first open and clear election was 1984. The first election in the history of Nicaragua in which one force turned power over to the other force as a result of election was 1990. And then the FSLN uh, fought against the CIA's intervention in its elections in, uh, in, in 2006, 2011, an election that was stolen from us. And um, then um, in, uh, no, in, that, in, in 2006 and 2003, and then there was the election in 2001, I mean. And then the election in 2006, we finally won with 38% of the vote. But in this, th in this uh, fourth phase, in which we've been able to reap the benefits of all the seeds that have been sowed with so many heroes and martyrs, with so much blood, with so much sacrifice involved. We're finally in the, in the phase of being able to uh, give the Nicaraguan people all of the welfare and safety that they deserve. So in, in, in this period, uh, poverty has been reduced. And uh, uh, many people have been capitalized. There's been redistributive policies. There's been the restitution of, of rights of the people. And there's been investment in infrastructure that, in, that uh, is to the benefit of all. So, for example, extreme poverty went from 17% to 6.9% in, uh, in this period. So this last period, and some people don't understand that, that the revolution is very much alive, and what it's doing now is giving to the Nicaraguan people all of the benefits, all of the redistributive benefits 
and the capitalization of the poor, like zero hunger and zero usury, that uh, that are, are transforming the the country in these years. But success doesn't mean that the people in Washington or in Miami uh, admire that. That is something that they want to destroy, as a matter of fact, because they do not want to see a successful left-wing government in Latin America. Well, uh, you the, know, the threat of a good example, uh, it seems you remain. Dr. Paul uh, Oquist, Minister for National Policies of the Presidency of Nicaragua, I look forward to our roundtable. Details coming up for the audience uh, later. I look forward to seeing you again that night. But I've got to go to the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. Sputnik News. At least 33 U.S. states have now experienced an increase in new coronavirus cases compared to last week. A total of 61,352 new cases were recorded and 685 new virus-related deaths. A total of 3,245,925 cases of coronavirus have been recorded in the United States by the end of the day on Saturday, according to Johns Hopkins University. Since the pandemic began, at least 134,777 people have died in the US from the virus. Donald Trump has been seen wearing a face mask in public for the first time, despite previously appearing reluctant to endorse their use. The US president was visiting a military hospital in Washington, where he met injured service personnel and health workers caring for COVID-19 patients. But despite health officials recommending face coverings as a way of limiting the spread of coronavirus, Trump has previously refused to wear them at public events. The Associated Press quoted sources close to the president as saying he feared wearing a mask would make him look weak and that it would shift the focus away from the economic recovery. He has also retweeted messages making fun of his Democratic presidential rival, Joe Biden, for wearing a face mask. A COVID-19 vaccine could be rolled out across the country in the first half of next year if trials are successful, according to a leading UK scientist. Professor Robin Shattock, who heads a team developing a coronavirus vaccine at Imperial College London, has said enough doses would be available for everyone in Britain if trials go really well. Speaking today, he said, 
We anticipate, if everything goes really well, we'll get an answer as to whether it works by early next year. So far, 15 volunteers have been vaccinated, but Professor Shattuck says this will be ramped up in the coming weeks to include another 200 to 300 patients. But he warned that there was no certainty that any of the vaccines currently being developed would work. Walt Disney World Resort has begun to reopen in Florida despite a coronavirus surge across the US state. The site's Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom opened on Saturday. Epcot and Disney's Hollywood Studios are expected to follow from the 15th of July. Visitors will be required to wear face masks and adhere to other safety measures across the complex in Orlando. More than a quarter of a million cases of COVID-19 have been reported in Florida, along with 4,197 deaths. Disney first closed the resort in March during the early months of America's outbreak, while infections were largely concentrated in New York and California at first. Florida is amongst several states recording a rise in coronavirus cases in recent weeks. In Orange County, where the resort is based, authorities have reported 16,630 cases, some of the highest numbers in Florida. Some of its competitors, Universal Orlando and SeaWorld Orlando, reopened to visitors several weeks ago. The former U.S. Special Counsel Robert Mueller, in a very rare move, has defended his office's prosecution of Trump adviser Roger Stone, saying he is still a convicted felon, and rightly so, in light of the president's commutation of Stone's jail sentence. He said he lied about the identity of his intermediary to WikiLeaks. He lied about the existence of written communications with his intermediary. He lied by denying he had communicated with the Trump campaign about the timing of WikiLeaks releases. He, in fact, updated senior campaign officials repeatedly about WikiLeaks, and he tampered with a witness, imploring him to stonewall Congress. He added, because his sentence has been commuted, he will not go to prison, but his conviction stands. Trump on Friday commuted the prison sentence of his longtime friend. The announcement came just days before Stone was set to report to a federal prison in Georgia. Polls are voting in a presidential election seen as the battle for the country's future and its strained relations with the European Union. The second round pits incumbent Andre Duda, an ally of the Conservative government, against socially liberal Warsaw Mayor Rafał Trotskowski. A Duda win would herald controversial changes to the judiciary and continued opposition to abortion and gay rights. Trotskowski backs a more progressive agenda and an active role in the EU. Duda toppled the first round of voting with a convincing lead but fell short of the 50% needed to win outright. But Trakskowski expects to win the support of most of those who voted for other candidates, and a close result is predicted. And finally, a new painting by Sanyu, who's been hailed as the Chinese Matisse, has sold for over 258 million Hong Kong dollars. That's more than 20 million pounds. Sold for that incredible price at auction last week, confirming his status as one of the most sought-after names in the lucrative Asian art market. Painted in the 1950s, Quatrenu features four reclining female figures in the French-Chinese painter's distinctively saturated style. The artwork led Sotheby's first major sale in Hong Kong since the coronavirus disrupted its live auction schedule, becoming the evening's most expensive lot after a 10-minute bidding war between four collectors. It's just the latest astronomical price paid for a work by Sanyu who went largely unrecognised during his lifetime and was effectively destitute upon his death in Paris in 1966. Skyrocketing prices reflect a surge in interest from Asian collectors whose spending power now significantly shapes the global auction market. Between the year 2000 and 2019, the price of Sanyu's work jumped by more than a thousand percent. According to experts, his brushstrokes and a sense of proportion are truly Matissean. 
And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Now, I'm speaking on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock on Scotland. The SNP, the forthcoming Scottish Parliament elections next May. The launch of Alliance for Unity, uh, with which I'm involved. You can follow that on Twitter, Alliance number 4 Unity. Uh, and uh, I'll be speaking about all matters uh, connected to the Scottish independence question and the SNP on Tuesday at 8 o'clock. But if Paul would call me up, he'd make my night. Now, uh, I'm also doing that round table that I told you about uh, with the Minister Dr. Paul Oquist on the 41st anniversary of the Sandinista revolution uh, and his focus now of how imperialism is destroying the planet. Uh, so the round table uh, is on the 16th uh, of July, uh, sorry, yes, the 16th uh, of July, but it will be replayed, uh, rebroadcast on the 19th. I still don't have the time uh, that that is on. If that could be got for me, uh, I'd appreciate it. Now, the doctor will see you now. Dr. Ranjit Brar is the Moats medic. He is the closest thing that the world has ever seen to Dr. Kildare. He is a voice of such clarity and interest that he's become an internet sensation. And I'm glad to say we had a hand in that. Dr. Ranjit Bra, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, let's talk about the United States first, if we may. It appears to be literally out of control now in the United States. The numbers are rising exponentially in the... Uh, hottest states. Remember Donald Trump said that when the heat came in the spring, uh, the virus would die. Uh, but uh, in the hottest places in the United States, places like Texas, Arizona, Florida, uh, it, is, uh, it is cutting an incredible swathe through the population. In Florida yesterday, there were 12,500 new cases in one day. Uh, why is it so out of control there, Doctor? Thanks, George. Pleasure to be back with you again. Uh, as you say, um, uh, this virus is, uh, is very far from over in the world. Um, we've seen, again, a, a massive increase since we spoke last week, uh, so there are now 13 million cases in the world. And the United States has quite consistently had uh, around a quarter between a third and a quarter of those figures in terms of numbers of cases. Uh, and the United States has currently uh, 140 thousand deaths from coronavirus. But as you say, they've re-entered a sharp exponential phase of rise. Um, Trump himself was seen for the first time wearing a mask, finally seeming to comprehend the necessity of urgent measures to be taken. But we've talked several times about the peculiar factors you predicted before I did, George, that you thought United States would quite possibly have the worst record and be the worst country. Right from the very inception, we saw the fact that initially it was impossible to get 
testing in the United States at a price that the population could afford. The United States is the richest country on Earth, but it, as we've said before, it's the most unequal country uh, on Earth, where the three richest people have the same amount of wealth as the poorest 200 million. And that means a vast number of people with their private uh, healthcare system, which is led by insurance companies, insurance companies which uh, make um, great uh, take great pride in the fact that they are able to um, increase the dividend to companies by reducing the overall spend on health care. So more than one third, between 30 and 40 percent of the total spending of the population on health care goes to companies' profits and dividends rather than on health. Uh, there are 60 to 70 million people. We don't know the true figures because as more and more people become unemployed, uh, very often their Medicare, their, their health care benefits and insurance are linked to their employment. And we've seen an increase of some 70, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, 50 million people uh, becoming un un unemployed in the United States in a country where there are already between 50 and 60 million people who had no access to health care. So, yeah, I mean, it's possible now, uh, I was just reading this, that more than 100 million people in the United States today don't have health care. I think that's an entirely reasonable estimate. And, you know, that is getting on for... 25 to well, probably 30% of the population of the richest country on earth cannot access healthcare. Then, of course, you have a system where there's inherent mistrust in information. Now, Trump has himself promoted that quite heavily. He said, you know, this is fake news from the beginning. I think the people widely recognize that we get a lot of misinformation in our media, nowhere more so than the United States, but then they don't have a suitable avenue to trust. And we've seen record amount of propaganda and disinformation around this. I mean, one, one press, bizarre press briefing that you'll remember in which Trump essentially said the best results to, were to be obtained by drinking bleach. And actually people were turning up at the um, A&E facilities in the United States, having drunk bleach, thinking that that might help them. So, you know, incredible amount of dis disinformation, very poor leadership from the top, a federal structure whereby states themselves are outbidding each other um, for medicines, for PPE, where there was lack of preparedness, lack of preventative measures. Um, so, it, it, and, and a country where actually there's incredible poverty amidst the apparent wealth. And we know that coronavirus hits the poor um, first and foremost. And then, of course, we've seen you know, with the uh, increasing unemployment, with the murder of, of George Floyd, there have been tremendous movements of unrest and discontent with the American political status quo. That's so huge numbers of people on the streets. And of course, Trump himself at various points, despite his measures of lockdown, you know, tweeting to his supporters that it's time to retake their city uh, and, and encouraging demonstrations. So, you know, everything that should be done and can be done in an organized society where the population have a decent social security net and have trust in the information that they're receiving, you know, is not being done in the United States. And it's not being done systematically, precisely because actually of their political and economic system and the inequality that it um, engenders, George. The organized society uh, that has dealt with this most effectively is, of course, China, which is the reason why uh, the United States political class, or one half of it, the other half is still fixated on Russia, uh, but the Republicans, the right, uh, far right uh, of American politics, has decided uh, that uh, 
more or less it's war with China. Yeah, I think on this note, there's a very interesting report came out um, from Philip Alston, who is the UN uh, Special Rapporteur uh, for Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. You may remember he, he is a chap who visited Britain during Theresa May's tenure as, uh, as Prime Minister and commented and made, uh, made um, really headlines by pointing out that up to one third of British children were living in extreme poverty, um, uh, huge numbers of people in work. Perhaps a fifth of the British population were having to uh, were food insecure and, and needing to visit food banks. That there was a homelessness crisis in Britain that perhaps meant two percent of the population, um, uh, uh, in fact, were unemployed. Though much of it hidden because of sofa surfing and various insecure forms. Now he actually just retired from his post and he's published his final report and he has made a very damning statement, saying that actually, you know, coronavirus has come to a world in which inequality, poverty, and disrespect for human life are already rampant. He said he's, he's, he's shot a hole in the United uh, Nations themselves, saying that their actual um, measure for the poverty line, which is $1.90 per day, or £1.50 per day, is grossly unambitious and actually itself is not enough in most countries, even the poorest countries on earth where living is cheaper, to, to secure food and housing. So, you know, there are huge problems of poverty and inequality in the world. Coronavirus has made that worse. But actually, uh, he said the one country which had bucked that trend, you know, which actually uh, had, uh, if you see a lot of free market fundamentalists as they've been liberalizing the world, they said, but look, there's less poverty than ever. He said that's due to two things. One is that that measure, which is so low of absolute poverty. So the other is that actually it's China that's lifted, you know, hundreds of millions, actually probably 750 million people out of poverty over the last decade, which bucks the whole trend of the rest of the world. And it's precisely that neoliberal uh, mechanism. And these are Philip, Philip Alston's uh, words, which in fact has plunged the world into poverty, which has left it in this dire state. And therefore, it is ironic that the United States should constantly point the finger at China, the one country which has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty as being the abuser of human rights. It constantly, of course, tries to destabilize China. And we've seen a ramping up of that propaganda this week onto a perhaps not unprecedented scale, but, a, a, you know, almost a war footing with the, with the United Nations also joining and saying to citizens you shouldn't go there because of the new security law, uh, which the Chinese are quite rightly now introducing in order to try and stop a, a, a campaign of destabilization, which is being waged uh, against China in Hong Kong, amongst other places, George. Now, lastly, and I'm grateful, as always, for your time, Doctor, uh, the British situation. Um, there seems to be an element, more than an element, there seems to be chaos uh, in the British government's uh, approach now. First of all, we were all supposed to wear masks in shops. I do anyway. Uh, I wear, I wear ma mask and gloves in a shop. Uh, why wouldn't you? Uh, you're surrounded by a significant number of people. There's the interests of the workers in the shop that have no choice but to sit there and have people breathe on them. Uh, and now Michael Gove, this day, uh, seems to have rode back from that. Uh, should we be wearing masks or not? I certainly think that people who are working in situations where they're exposed 
need to be wearing masks, need to be wearing gloves, need to have adequate PPE. We've already seen actually a mask and gloves and an aprons in a hospital setting dealing with uh, COVID patients is actually not adequate PPE. In fact, what we've done throughout this crisis in Britain, our government have, rather than be led by the science, they've been led by their lack of preparedness and what they can roll out. So, you know, they've constantly changed whether whether COVID-19 itself is a a high impact uh, disease, um, which necessitates a certain grade of PPE. They've done away with that because they couldn't provide it, hadn't prepared, despite the fact that they were warned by Operation Cygnus, which Jeremy Hunt had overseen in 2015 when he was health secretary. They'd realised that the NHS would fall over in the the face of a pandemic. uh, And rather than uh, enact changes, which would have meant going against their systematic policy of running down capacity and privatisation because they weren't prepared to do that, they simply buried the report. And really, it's been a similar case at every stage. Um, I think, you know, the government are quite clearly not going to provide masks and PPE. Um, There's almost a kind of situation of profiteering. There's certainly uh, demand would far outstrip supply currently if you asked everyone to wear it. And therefore, this is what's conditioning the equivocal, equivocal, you know, blowing hot and cold on these questions. There's no question that the number of deaths are gradually falling, but really that's leveled off this week. Probably there were 600 deaths and been falling maybe 100 a week for the last three, four weeks. But all the signs are that we're leveling off at this rate. And as we ease off of lockdown, and really it's almost gone, despite the hazard measures that are being adopted, really we're very likely to see an increase in the rate. I hope not to the extent that the United States is facing, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility. I was looking again at the rate of the prevalence to see if my my previous uh, facts were correct. It does seem that in London, perhaps as many as 17% of the population have had coronavirus. Much of the country is around 5%. East of England, maybe 10. North of England, maybe 11. But essentially, the vast majority of the country still have not had the virus, are susceptible. There are 14,000 people currently who have the virus around the UK. And if we don't take adequate measures to stop it from spreading, we still are very likely, George, uh, to have a second wave without wanting to be alarmist. Doctor, uh, thank you again for your sagacious uh, tour of the coronavirus horizon. Much appreciated. Thank you very much uh, indeed. Uh, now, uh, Paul hasn't called, but Joe in Glasgow has. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Joe. Hi there, George. Pleasure Hi. to speak with you again. And you, sir? I uh, just wanted to speak, about, as you said, about the independence referendum. Uh, I'm a bit like yourself, a uh, Labour man in Scotland, um, opposing uh, to, to Scottish independence. I look at it at the same sort of glasses that you look at through. You know, what's the difference between a man in Glasgow like myself and a man down in Newcastle? We earn the same money, we watch the same TV shows, you know, we read the same newspapers, whatever it may be, sometimes even support the same teams. So there's a lot more in common than as between me and somebody in, say, Brussels. Uh, but I just think that the, this, uh, the policy that's been taken by the parties in, uh, down in Westminster or in, the, in Scotland as well, this uh, unconditional opposition to independence is completely fine. But I just think that the unconditional opposition to a referendum is, is, isn't really a systematic democracy. I understand that this way is that although you had a referendum once, but surely even you could see that, oh, well, you know, things have changed and maybe it would be better for the Labour Party in Scotland to focus on criticising the SNP and their poor record on things uh, than, you know, opposing a referendum. Well, I think that's a very wise and level-headed intervention. Uh, The the Scottish people have the right to hold a referendum, subject, of course, to 
the modalities of it uh, being agreed and a mandate for holding it uh, being achieved. Uh, and by which I mean, if Nicola Sturgeon puts in her election manifesto in May, if you elect me, I will hold another referendum on independence and she wins uh, the uh, power back again, then clearly she has a mandate for another referendum, though not an untrammeled mandate. For example, uh, the issue of the franchise, uh, the issue of the question, uh, the issue of the modalities of that referendum uh, will have to be far more seriously negotiated than they were with David Cameron. Uh, David Cameron gave Alex Salmond absolutely everything uh, that he wanted, including the right to frame the question uh, so that people like you and me were forced to argue for the word no, uh, which uh, puts you back a couple of points uh, before you've even kicked the ball, Joe. Uh, nobody likes to be the one promoting uh, the negative in a question. Uh, so, for example, the question next time will have to be uh, do you wish to leave Britain or remain in Britain? The same question uh, that we put in the EU referendum. The question of the franchise, uh, I believe, is also very important. Uh, the, the issue of who can vote uh, and who cannot vote. Last time, I had no vote. Next time, I will uh, have a vote. Uh, but the issue of who can vote is another important question. Uh, but the timing issue is debatable. There is no question that Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond both repeatedly, repeatedly, by which I mean dozens of times, on the public record said, inter alia, this is a once-in-a-lifetime referendum or a once-in-a-generation referendum. Now, uh, six years is not a lifetime. It's not even the lifetime of a rabbit. Uh, and it's uh, not a generation either. A generation is 20 years, perhaps even 25 years. But let's be generous. 20 years, six of which uh, have elapsed. So the question of when such a referendum can be held is a moot point. I believe that while the government of Britain, which Scotland voted to remain in, is dealing with the exiting from the European Union, it is absurd uh, to have a referendum. It is absurd to have a referendum in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. Or as Nicola Sturgeon herself said just this day on the BBC, uh, while we're coping with the economic devastation uh, created by the, uh, by the coronavirus pandemic. So the timing of it is debatable, is moot. The principle of that Scotland can have a referendum uh, when it decides to do so uh, is accepted by me and always has been. Scotland is a nation. It has national rights. It has the right to remain in Britain. It has the right to leave Britain. But it's not a unilateral right, is what I'm saying, Joe. Last word to you.
Uh, appreciate that, George. Uh, no, I, I understood where you come from. I put it very eloquently there. I'm wondering if I could just make one quick point. I know you'll probably give precious time. No, go on. Uh, and, uh, you, you've probably looked at today's date, George, and it's not it's normally very busy around this time of year in a certain place, that place being Belfast. I can't believe that even in this modern-day situation and the coronavirus pandemic, as you see, we're still seeing bonfires in Belfast with things like... Um, that very vital thing said about the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the anti-fascist movement and so on. It's ridiculous. I just want you to, um, uh, your opinion, how we could go about getting the arms job and people that celebrate that sort of thing as a hate group, because that's what it is, George. Well, uh, all sectarianism is uh, vile and to be deplored. Sectarianism between Christians, sectarianism between Muslims, uh, sectarianism of all kinds uh, is a deplorable thing uh, and I have always not only stood against it but sometimes been uh, on the receiving end of it. As a matter of fact I now get uh, a literally ceaseless stream of abuse including threats uh, from the other side of that uh, divide, Joe. Uh, I'm no longer uh, family, uh, it would uh, appear. The one thing we cannot allow to happen is for sectarian division to dictate uh, the political future of Scotland. Uh, that would be simply monstrous. Uh, someone is not uh, good uh, because they are on one side of that divide uh, or bad because they're on the other side. All expressions of sectarianism and hate are uh, to be deplored. As it happens, nowadays, I get far more hate uh, from uh, the people that I worked to support over all of my life uh, than I do from the other side. And that's pretty deplorable too. Joe, thanks for the call. Let's go to Julian in London. Go ahead, Julian. Hello, George. I want to talk about the annexation. Um, and following on from a call you had earlier and a comparison, that must be the annexation of Carlisle, which is a historically I, I Scottish honestly town. Thought, I, I literally thought that's what you were about to say. <laughs> uh, were you, are you talking about the border? There's ghouls across the Scottish border screaming hate at English tourists, devastating the Scottish tourist industry on top of all the other devastation that the Scottish economy has suffered. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for the British taxpayer, Scotland would uh, literally have sunk, economically sunk already. There's a lot of devastation that, that's gone on there, everywhere in, in the past few months, but I yeah. did want to bring up the annexation in the West Bank and the 30% of the territory that the Palestinians are losing. Someone made a laughable comparison earlier, but there is a real annexation going on in contravention of international law. I took my camera out in, into London, as you know I like to do, and filmed a socially distant uh, protest uh, with uh, one other person. And I saw a few other people doing the same thing, and it caught a little bit on online. But I wonder if this is another opportune moment to bury bad news and perform an act like this while the world I was just about to ask you I was about mm. to ask you if I'd missed it uh, because uh, there was intense speculation uh, mm. not even last week I think the week before uh, that this was about to happen but it hasn't actually yet happened has it so we're teetering on the on the edge of it and it seems like it could happen uh, any moment now 
and the not that it would make any difference campaign. to the mm. to the people who live there, of course, because they've been living there entirely under uh, the rule of their occupier for 53 years. And the one surprising difference that it won't make is that the people living there will not gain citizenship. Now, if they did, it might be fair, and you might say, why not just annex the whole of Palestine, Israel-Palestine, and call it Israel-Palestine? As and, uh, and give everybody the support. vote. That's my policy, yeah. yeah. They, they want the land and not the people. That's the definition of apartheid and racism. Thank you, Julian, uh, indeed, for that. We'll, of course, cover it if, indeed, it happens. A Facebook user says these elites have been doing these kinds of sick acts for a long time. The power and money can buy their freedom from justice. Let's pray this sickness is exposed and their world is toppled. And John says, watching from COVID-free New Zealand. Tip my hat to New Zealand. What a wonderful job they did. Richard says, unfortunately, they won't have George on national TV. He'd wake up all the sheeple that are still asleep. He should still be in Parliament. Thank you, Richard. Uh, but I'm doing better than national TV. I'm on international TV with you now and uh, turning in a bigger audience than any British political television programme. And on YouTube, Mary says, Bill Gates and Epstein devised a maniacal plan to weed out so-called undesirables and repopulate the planet with what they viewed as their exclusive clubs superior genes. And on YouTube, Bunny says, I love Trump, the best US president in living memory. And Keel says, George, Paul can't call. He's been admitted. <laughs> I better not say the next words in the light of Manila's plea to us to be kinder on issues of mental health. Haywood says, it's out of control in the US because our government did nothing when it had the chance. And then when it did, the fascists came out in the street and threatened violence over the lockdown. And another uh, writer says, Trump said America would be safe from virus by Easter. He meant next year. And Kiki says the numbers are going to continue to rise in America because America is not doing what it was supposed to do in the eyes of God. And Jazz says the most undemocratic country with half the population without health care university debts and all their taxes going to another country. And Nicotina says, if Trump kills off his voters by lying about COVID-19, who will vote for him? And Tom says, that Dr. Brar is a top man and knows his business. Indeed, he does. Quick break and then calls. Here's the number again, 02077 982 If you're in the UK, if you're in the US, 001 757-744-4480. Hello, people of Britain. It's your Prime Minister here, Boris Johnson. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Oh, I've got to take a call. Yo, Dominic! No, no, I'm not busy. What's up? Oh. What do you mean you're in town? Well, you shouldn't be up there. You should be in bloody London, for God's sake. Get yourself back to work, man. And you're sure you weren't spotted? With your eyesight? Well, if you wanted a castle, man, you should have just said I could have got you one. You know, just get yourself back to work. Yep. Yep. I love you too. Okay, bye. 
Well, hope nobody heard that. Now huh. you're listening to the mother of all talk shows with George Gallery, where there are no tuition fees. <laughs> we'll see about that, George. Radio Sputnik. The mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. The world is our classroom, and you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Yeah. Now, uh, karma is uh, a terrible thing. Uh, I was going to use a word I'm not really supposed to use anymore. Uh, but uh, President Bolsonaro of Brazil, uh, who was one of these COVID idiots uh, who denied the whole thing, was all a hoax, now has the coronavirus. And we've got a call from Sao Paulo, Samuel, who is an infectious disease specialist. Samuel, welcome. Uh, hi, George. Thanks for, for, for having my call. Uh, the reason uh, I'm calling is to make uh, an appeal. Because uh, I think um, in this urgency of uh, confronting our the three stooges, Trump, Boris Johnson, and Bolsonaro, I think the left is getting every, almost everything wrong about this pandemic. I think we have a uh, slight filtering the information through the mouths of Bolsonaro and Trump and it's uh, compromising our ability to understand it and to actually follow the science. The, uh, Bolsonaro is a jerk. Uh, he's a uh, genocidal guy, okay. But since he said that it's just a small flu, now we know the lethality of coronavirus is similar to flu, actually, it actually is. And if you're under 45, it's almost zero. And there's no uh, reason for us to keep, for example, the schools closed. Here in Sao Paulo, uh, they reopened the bars, uh, the restaurants, but the schools are still closed. Uh, for, I think, uh, and it has implications for our response. Now we are living not just a pandemic, but the record, uh, uh, historical record of transfer of public resources to private hands. And with the left defending lockdowns, which it, this is the thing, there's no science backing this. I will appeal to you, because you have a great audience, but most internet shows, the left is getting everything wrong. But generalized using of masks is not, um, it's not useful. And we basically we have the left repeating the propaganda of these lockdowns and masks and everything. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, this great surge in cases in the U.S., uh, Trump said it's because of the testing. Everybody make fun of him. In this specific point, for example, it's true. If you look at the graphic, uh, basically this search is for notifications of new cases, but mm. discovered in serological mm. tests, which means you could have uh, had COVID two months ago, and if you test today, you've got positive antibodies. And this is what being counted. Dead, uh, and, what, about all the, what about all the dead Americans and Brazilians? Uh, 
it does kill, but it does kill specific, mostly, mostly uh, uh, vulnerable people. Is that okay then? And no, it, it can. It's, it's just like just like flu, for example. Flu. No, it's three much times. More. It's, it is three times more lethal no, it's not. than flu. Yes. It no, is. it's not. No, no, I'm just, Samuel, no, no. No, I let you speak for quite a long time without interrupting you. You came on here to say you're an opponent uh, of Bolsonaro, uh, Trump, and Boris Johnson, but you actually support uh, the political approach uh, to the coronavirus of Bolsonaro and Donald Trump. And you are in denial uh, about the level of lethality. It is exactly, if you want the exact percentage, it is 2.9 times more lethal than flu. That is virtually three times more lethal uh, than flu. And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people are dead. And it's of no comfort to me whatsoever that they were vulnerable. As a matter of fact, that makes it worse, not better. Off with you. Fabrice is in the south of France. Let's hear from him. Fabrice. Hi. Hi, George. Good evening. Evening. Uh, great to be calling back again. Um, we're, we're all over the world tonight. It's wonderful. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm about 100, 100 uh, kilometers to the north of Spain, in the south of France to the north of Spain, not far from Andorra. Okay. Um, yeah, so my question is, I'd like to know your opinion, hear your opinion, uh, on someone I know in England who sort of seems to fall into all of the into the traps of what the mainstream media would like us to believe to be true, which then on alternative media, your show, RT, amongst many others, uh, the Duran, for example, .com, um, get, we get the, much more of an insightful and intelligent and what I can actually follow as making sense arguments. And uh, my question is regarding BBC, whether it's uh, bias or not, and uh, I'm in contact with someone in England on a fairly regular basis who, who, as I said, falls into the traps of believing what she is supposed to believe, arguing, she argues, that BBC is, is in independent because it's, it's paid for by a license, not by the government, paid for by a license. Whereas, for example, the mainstream media in the USA, you know, CNN, MSNBC, corporate-owned, so we can understand that. They're corporate-owned. They, Or we have ITV in England, the UK. We have ITV, Channel 4, certainly ITV, paid for by advertising. And then we have uh, RT, which is paid, state-funded, paid for by the government, which is, to a large extent, true. That doesn't, have, however, write off the good quality work that can be produced. But believing that BBC is is somehow independent mm. it's a difficult one for me to to counter well uh, let me give you the let me give you the facts uh, fabrice uh if uh, if the license fee is uh set by the government uh, then the bbc must never fall foul of the government that sets the level of its uh, license fee well, they uh, could set it high or lower, couldn't they? They could uh, change it. Well, they could uh, make it yeah, uh, well of course, the, the, the appetite of the BBC for public money is literally but, insatiable uh, and is, uh, is billions of pounds, something like five billion pounds a year. Uh, they, coming from the licence, is that right? Yes, but it's by, this was my second point. First of all, the government sets the level of the yeah. licence fee. 
the government through the legal system punishes people, including by imprisonment, if they uh, fail to pay it. Uh, if I were to tell you, for example, that the, uh, the greatest number of women prisoners in Britain's jails are there because of failure to pay the license fee. Is that, that really true? Yes, that may, that may, it's the biggest single reason for incarceration of women in the British penal system. And the government runs the uh, justice system and yeah. makes it illegal uh, for you not to pay. Thirdly, uh, the director general of the, uh, the BBC is picked by the government. Uh, or rather by the board of governors who are picked by the government. The yeah. chairman of the governors is a hand-picked government appointee. Uh, the, the, until recently, and I've no reason to believe that it's changed, uh, the, the British intelligence services literally have an office inside the BBC, mm -hmm. uh, casting their evil eye on the political views uh, of the employees. But largely, none of these things are necessary. Uh, the employees of the BBC, know, they know which way the wind is blowing. Yeah. Uh, they yeah, know that, that someone yeah. like me is to be treated as an enemy of the state. Uh, they know that someone like Tony Blair is to be treated as if he were the oracle, uh, and so on. They don't need anyone uh, to threaten them uh, or punish them. They do it, uh, they do it uh, willingly. There's yeah. an old adage, Fabrice, thank God you cannot bribe or twist the average British journalist. But when you see what unbribed he'll do, you realize there's no yeah. reason to. Need to. They do it anyway. They do it it's anyway. A, it's a difficult one to, to you either. I suspect anyway. I'm a suspicious type of person. So I don't, I don't trust them anyway until, I, until they have earned. I feel that they have earned their trust. Well, they, they entirely uh, lost trust uh, in the last 20 years. I don't, I don't trust them. One example, a journalist said, I think it was on the Grey Zone, said recently they had something like, just to throw the numbers up, roughly more or less in the year, 300 articles on Venezuela and, uh, and all were negative except one. Uh, so one out of 300. This yeah, is, exactly. That, I mean, I haven't even looked at their website. I wouldn't uh, be found dead waste, on their website, but uh, <laughs> I'm not uh, remotely surprised by that. Uh, the BBC once had a reputation, undeserved exactly. but a reputation, a uh, for, time, uh, for uh, relative impartiality. Yes. Uh, but uh, ever since the run-up uh, to the Iraq war, uh, it has been the Bush and Blair myself. corporation for exactly. me. Terrible. I say to myself, they make good nature programs. We can be sure they of that. They do, but other people yeah. could make them. Uh, <laughs> and we now live in an era where nobody uh, even watches television uh, no, I regularly. No, I haven't had a television for 30 years, I would say. Well, and I, didn't, I don't know how this person that I uh, communicate with on a regular basis in England can wade through the, the Times newspaper, the Channel 4 News, and the BBC. Really, I just, it's something in me, when I listen to them, I'm not, I feel that I'm not being told the truth. Well, that's and right. I, and and uh, there's, there are yeah. still millions uh, of people uh, who are uh, sheeple. Still, uh, still watching. And who swallow the line that the prevailing orthodoxy wants, to, wants them to yeah. swallow. But it's fewer people now 
uh, Fabrice than ever before. Your show, for example, so you're saying you get a higher audience than, let's say, for example, BBC or Channel 4, vastly, you get a higher number. Vastly more. Uh, That's vastly more. Uh, this show was watched last week, watched by 750,000 people. 751,000. The media, the, the lamestream, let's call them the, mm. the mainstream media, mm. which is a, the mm. dinosaur, blah, blah, whatever, they must know this. They do know it. That's why they would never refer to the existence uh, of this show. Uh, right. They will never report the fact uh, that this show is being seen by many multiples of people uh, compared to any of the uh, BBC, ITV, Channel 4 uh, political shows. So, many, so many multiples. Why, uh, don't, they, they, why they, don't they get their act together and improve the quality of what they give us well, and they, then at least they could, they could uh, have a chance of competing? Well, uh, a scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. Right. Uh, yeah. it, they do what they do That's because what I, of what they are and That's what their right. purpose is. I just wanted to make the point. This show was watched last week by 751,000 people, but it was also listened to on FM in Washington, D.C., on AM from coast to coast in the United States, and online on sputniknews.com across the whole world. So you've got to add the listeners to the 751,000 viewers. And that means... I can't tell you the number of listeners, it's not countable. Uh, but it's inconceivable to me that it wouldn't put the total audience last week at a million. Now you tell me a show, uh, never mind a left-wing show, <laughs> that gets a million viewers. A three-hour show every yeah. week. Uh, this is uh, successful because... And people, people also, they, they tune in, they listen, they watch, because they want to, because they well, choose quite, to. Quite. Uh, it doesn't cost them anything, but they are here because they've chosen to. And one of the reasons why they've chosen to is that they have lost faith in the so-called mainstream broadcasters. They no longer, just like you, feel that they're being told the truth. Uh, by these mainstream uh, broadcasters. They may well uh, surf around and take in other people, maybe people with diametrically different uh, political views, but that's fine. Uh, we exist and we are thriving because we give a point of view, but we allow any other point of view its fair share of the microphone. And that doesn't happen in the mainstream media. Fabrice, I have not been on the BBC for a period of at least four years, four years, and I'm one of I, the George, most uh, well-known political figures in the country. And I've seen it on a YouTube video, Pac-Man inter interviewing you, and this awful technique that he, a real bullying kind of technique that just turns most sensitive kind of people off. You had just won, I think it was somewhere in London. I yeah, yeah. Like, well, but, but believe me, Fabrice... Are you, are, you, are you glad to do blah, 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 blah? There's a real bullying technique. Yeah, yeah. But believe me, Fabrice, uh, compared to Jeremy Paxman, uh, the, the new generation are far, far, far worse. Uh, they are Paxman without the brains. Look, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I almost felt I was in the south of France, which is the closest I'm going to get to that this year, I think. Let's talk with Joshua in London. Go ahead, Joshua. You like that, George? Yes, good, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, George, uh, obviously, I mean, the, the Scottish government uh, 
feel, or at least a lot of nationalists feel, that they should weaponise COVID and the Scottish government's uh, comparatively better handling of it than the UK government as a pretext for independence. But I, well, just a bit of inspiration, you might call it, you know, like when you take other countries across the world, like Japan, for example, that has, you know, a quarter of the number of infections that Scotland, uh, uh, COVID-19 related deaths that Scotland has, the fact that it's, uh, even though its population is 25 times larger than Scotland, I do think that it, it does call into question on a, on a global, mm. in a global context. Scotland, the has the, Scotland has the fourth worst, worst death rate in the world. So, no, no, I'm, I know. You know but they're only, uh, the nationalists to, to, are only going yeah, to ever they, do they it in like relation to, to the UK government. They like to paint uh, their handling of the oh. epidemic as a success story, but that's a lie. Uh, they're covering up of the Nike... Uh, conference and the outbreak that took there took place there. Their shunting of old people into uh, into care homes, uh, care less of whether or not they were infected, uh, has led to uh, excessive deaths and entirely unnecessary deaths. And the weaponizing of COVID that you refer to is a real thing. Uh, just this weekend. As last weekend, uh, there are people done up like Chernobyl uh, uh, technicians screaming hate uh, English people uh, to get the F out of Scotland uh, on the basis that somehow the English are carrying uh, a plague uh, into Scotland. Uh, they would rather that we left the furlough money uh, on which a million Scots are currently living that we just left it at the border and didn't bother crossing. Uh, Joshua, thanks for that call. Gerald is in Kilwinny, uh, in Ayrshire. Uh, let's hear from him. Gerald, go ahead. Hello, George. I, I said I was from Kilwinny. I'm not sure if your man knew where that was in Scotland, but I knew you'd been there. You've probably been there on your travels many years ago. Uh, our editor uh, lives uh, very close to you. Uh, and oh, I better right. not say which village, but very, very <laughs> well, close to you. So I don't I'm know sure why they said very... Glasgow on the screen. It's okay, not I just say that so they know where I'm going. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sure your editor had a very good uh, July the 12th celebration. I'm sure you did, George. One of the greatest days in the history of the Catholic Church, when I'm sure you remember a, a Pope uh, supported King William of Orange to uh, a great Catholic victory, uh, something celebrated <laughs> in uh, Northern Ireland uh, for many years. Yes, go ahead, Joe. Just, uh, my point is really about... Um, it's the Premiership Games. I know it's not probably the most important subject, but every game now is the, the, knee, the taking of the knee. And I kind of feel no, like I think it's, it's actually... Uh, I think it's uh, begun to stop, Gerald. I didn't see it today. No, it did happen, George. What happened was they had a minute silence for Jack Charlton, and he had literally five seconds of taking the knee uh -huh. after it. Okay. I, I just kind of feel like it started off... With a, it's a great concept, but now it's like it's become corporatised. It's almost like the BBC and the Premier League mm. are giving themselves a pat on the back yeah. by doing this. Yeah. I think the message well, is been I, lost. I thought, I thought it was dying out. Uh, it's probably time for it to die out. Uh, the uh, point has been made. Uh, black lives do matter, and footballers, a very substantial proportion of whom are, of course, themselves black. Uh, more than a third of English Premiership players are black. They themselves have suffered uh, racism, abuse from the terraces and so on. Uh, and, uh, and it was right that they played their part in it. 
but it's probably becoming a bit hackneyed, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I just think to myself, when I, when I see all these players doing it, and I'm not slagging them off, but I look at even some of the young white players. If you were to throw, to throw a name out of there, like, say, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, would they actually know who they were? And this is my own ignorance. I, I couldn't actually tell you. I know more about the American um, racial pioneers, like, you know, those men I've mentioned, mm. uh, than I do. I couldn't tell you the name of any of the black English racial, um, you know, pioneers uh. who helped. No, that, that, well, maybe we, should, maybe we should address that, actually, in a subsequent yeah. uh, programme. Gerald, thanks for that. I've got to give Mike in South Carolina just one minute to make his point. Mike, go ahead. Hey, thanks, George. Great to talk to you again. Never miss your show. Thanks. Um, uh, a quick question here or two about uh, uh, the uh, Scottish independence thing. Um, we were talking about the uh, time frame. You said that it was six years ago that they voted. Is yes. that correct? yes. Okay, but it was four years ago that they voted uh, that that the UK voted to leave the European Union. Yes, it was 2016 when that happened. Mike, okay. I've only got so, I've literally got 20 seconds, so let me give you an answer. The Scottish referendum was explicitly supposed to be a once in a generation uh, a referendum. Uh, a generation is not six years. We voted to remain in Britain and Britain voted to leave the European Union. It's really not rocket science, it's logic. See you next week.